Hey, everybody, Stefan Molyneux, Free Domain Radio, freedomainradio.com slash donate, please, to help out the show this winter season. It's a long way till spring, my friends. We need the vittles. So we got a baker's half dozen of callers tonight. Six, count them, six callers. The first, ooh, let's get deep and meaty. What are the psychological deep meanings and implications of the relationship between sex and violence? The hairy palm turns into a fist and punches through the topic. It was a great conversation. The second caller related to the woman who was a baby boomer who disagreed with me about my analysis of the baby boomers. This is a guy who disagreed with the way that I talked to or handled or interacted with the woman who was the baby boomer. And I guess like a lot of people who come on, well, you know what, listen to the conversation and you'll see what happened. The third caller, he was involved in a relationship with a woman for five years and they broke up recently but a number of her family members are in the u.s illegally and did some absolutely horrendous horrifying satanic things to her when she was younger what should he do what should he do the fourth caller well we had an in-depth discussion of empathy which is kind of like the theme of this show the way that it kind of synchronizes together sometimes And the fifth caller had an interesting question. So I will sometimes say to people who say, oh, managers are just parasites, or, you know, they have that labor theory of value, that leftist Marxist approach to things. I will say to them, well, have you ever been a manager? But then I talk about, I've done a whole presentation on, on Australia, never been to Australia. I talk about things that I have not directly experienced. What's the difference? Great question. And the sixth caller, well, men going their own way. Is it too dangerous to get involved in relationships in the male unfriendly gynocentric universe of the modern West? Or do you just kind of hold out till things change or you die? So it's a great, great set of callers. Thanks everyone so much. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. And of course, if you have Christmas shopping to do, you can use our affiliate link. Costs you nothing. FDRURL.com forward slash Amazon. All right. Well, first today, we have Michael. Michael wrote in and said, what are the psychoanalytic meanings and implications of sex and violence? And why are these two forces of nature so often associated with power? That's our Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? Hello, Stefan. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Um, tell me a little bit more about your hypothesis. Well, it's, it's a rather, it, it is a rather wide open question. Sex, violence, and power, quite a massive uh, topic. Um, I wrote down a list of bullet points here, and uh, I suppose I would like to start by reading this objective that I made. My objective in discussing sex, violence, and power is to help popularize the application of Freudian psychoanalysis in the realm of politics and social psychology, so as to combat the inadequacies of neo-Marxist critical theory when it comes to analyzing power structures. So that is the direction which I am coming at this question from. Right. Okay. So do you feel that or do you believe that? Let's just do the, the two, the sex and violence. Do you, do you think that sex and violence are automatically co-joined or there's some deep subterranean relationship between them? Uh, indeed I do, and, and this is uh, w- at least one theory behind that. Um, the, uh, a, f- a Freudian definition would be that 
sexuality is a life drive which transcends mere intercourse and actually includes everything having to do with the the uh, desire to sustain consciousness as a species. And violence would be a force of uh, thanatos or uh, death drive or um, so basically it's the it's the conflict and yin and yang type relationship between eros and thanatos uh, the, the hypothesis is that all power is thus inherently sexual and even death itself would be sexual but not in the sense of the um, um, modern popular concept of the word sex Okay, but let me let me just ask you this. So, so what does this do in your daily life in terms of helping you to make better decisions, or or get along with people better, or have a better sex life, or romantic life? I guess that's my. I, listen, I've I've had my curiosities and so on about Freudian theories as well, but I did have a very tough time translating them into something practical and useful for my day to day life. Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, for me, I'm, I'm coming at this from the angle of um, I, I've I've been observing human behavioral patterns, uh, both on a on a small scale and also on a large scale, and there I became aware of certain idiosyncrasies, um, which I could only explain through a Freudian explanation. And uh, I can give a few examples of that. Um, well, no, uh, see, I don't want more abstract examples, if you don't mind. What I do want is how it helps you to make better decisions in your daily life. Not your observational stuff, and it's very abstract and so on. And mm -hmm. I'm open to it. Like, I'm not skeptical of, in terms of uh, you, 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 that doesn't have any practical application. I'm just curious how, you know, when I look at philosophy and I say, okay, we've got the non-aggression principle, I've got self-knowledge, and I can really sort of map out how it helps me to make better decisions in my life. I guess that's my question for you. How does this analysis help you make better decisions in your daily life? Or does um, I would say it, uh, the, 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 one of the first things that comes to mind is it helps me to empathize with um, what it means to be a man and and to better understand male suffering as well as the male psyche, uh, both in my own life and also in observing how, how people interact, including myself interacting with others. You realize um, that's all very abstract again, right? Yes, I, I, uh, let's see if I can let's see if I can nail this down a little better. Um, I suppose I uh, let's see. Uh, not sure how to come at it from a non-abstract angle. Um, and that's that's the challenge, right? With this kind of yeah. stuff, and you know, when it's a, to better understand the male psyche, well, that's saying that the male psyche is one thing, but it's not. Right, there's R-selected men, there's K-selected men, there are men in Nigeria, there are men in Belgium, there are white men, black men, there are uh, uh, oriental men, and so on. And so I don't know how it helps to understand the male uh, psyche in some sort of generic 
fashion. And even if you do sort of understand the male psyche in some generic fashion, I'm not sure how that translates into more tangible, useful behaviors. And the, this just, just comes from my entrepreneurial days, right? I mean, I guess I'm still an entrepreneur, but it it is always a big question. Okay, well, how does this stuff help you in your daily life? So the show is about free domain radio, the the logic of personal and political liberty, or the logic of personal and political freedom, and the personal freedom comes first. And for knowledge to become power, it must be actionable in some specific context. Like if I went to a business and I said, I have a process or a package or an idea that is going to help you improve your business. What's the first question they would ask me? Precisely, uh, what are the, precisely how will it, do, will it accomplish that goal? Yeah, how does this change what I'm doing in some specific way that makes me more money? And hopefully on a repetitive rather than a one-time basis, right? And so if you are... If you want to have a conversation about something, which I'm always happy and keen to do, but you want to have a conversation about something, on behalf of the listeners, I guess my question is, okay, but how does this help people in their daily lives? How does this help people make better decisions in their daily life? Because you're, an, you're a seller, right? I hope you understand that. Like when you have ideas, you're trying to sell your ideas to people and the most practical people in the world are the ones you really want to have listen to your ideas, right? The most practical uh, people because they're the ones actually out there doing things with their lives. And I'm not saying you're not, but, you know, getting things done. And and those practical people are going to say, well, this is all well and good, but, you know, and this is something that I remembered when I took an English degree. I took two years of an English degree at York University and I left because it's like, I don't know how I can be wrong here. I don't like there's no friction here. Mm. Um, this is my opinion of John Fowles is the magus. And it's like, well, OK, but uh, how can this be uh, gainsaid? And so my question is, on behalf of the listeners, let's say that we engage in this conversation. Let's say we try to come up with some general principles. How are they applicable in daily life? And if there's no answer to that, it still doesn't mean we can't have a conversation. But it's just important for people to know that this isn't going to result in any anything practical or applicable. Yes. Um, well, let's see if let's see if I can explain this clearly. I actually believe that this theory will not only help to lower rates of things such as male suicide, but I believe that this will actually help to safeguard the future of Western civilization. The application of Freudian psychoanalysis to social psychology, and um, it's difficult to explain why that is without going into uh, some of the um, specific definitions, which I have lined up here. I can I can read well, some. Hold off. on a sec, though. But are you saying that men are killing themselves as a result of purely internal processes, or is there an argument to be made that men are killing themselves as a result of you know very specific anti-male, pro-female or pro-divorcee, for instance, state? policies and is it a merely internal process or is it also a process of activism in terms of being aware of the, the of the bad laws or the destructive laws trying to find ways to bypass them or avoid them well it's i would say it's absolutely both and um to explain that for example uh the male if if, if the male does not have self-knowledge then he is more likely to engage in self-destructive behaviors and it's difficult to, for him to maneuver his way through a problematic landscape without that 
internal knowledge. And specifically, one of the things that psychoanalysis does for men, and also for both men and women, but for, for men in this case, is it humanizes male sexuality by bringing in the inner child and the, uh, the human inner child element of male sexuality. Oh, yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Okay, when you're starting to bring children and sexuality together, I know you're saying inner child and so on, but I do need to kind of ask what what is meant by that. Oh, to be clear, uh, absolutely nothing to do with uh, pedophilia. Absolutely. No, 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 I understand that. I, I completely understand that. But I still think it's worth <laughs> clarifying. I mean, if you're not used to communicating these ideas, this may be a sticking point for some people when you're starting talking about male sexuality and the inner child. Um, my, my inner child is, was prepubescent and doesn't really do much around that area, anything at all, in fact. Yes. Um, well, if I may, may, this is, this is going to be somewhat abstract, but if I may, may I give some of the abstract definitions regarding what I mean by the inner child? Okay. So the hypothesis is that consciousness, uh, expands not only linearly, but cumulatively with uh, the past at the core and and the present at an ever-expanding sphere. You can imagine it much like an explosion with uh, the inner child at the core. So, so the past is actually the closest part of the psyche. And thus, although, for example, the first year of life is far away in terms of time span, it is, in fact, the closest element of our being in terms of the un of the unconscious. And thus, there is an inner father, an inner child, and uh, an inner feminine side, an inner mother imago, if you will. And these aspects of one's psyche are always with us and play out in, in different ways. Um, which, if not understood, can can become problematic. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if you're waiting for me to respond or not. Oh, uh, yes. Well, I mean, I certainly agree that we have inner alters or inner alter egos. Uh, we have um, the internalized mother, the internalized father, and this sort of goes on in various waves regarding our life. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the closer, the distant we have inner encouraging teachers, the negative teachers. So, yes, we do have all of these uh, aspects to us. Um, and, and it is important to be aware of how the conversations of the internalized personalities we've accumulated, like an elk wandering through the woods with burrs. It is important to understand how these personalities inform us and engage us. You know, we engage in mental debates. Uh, am I am I able to achieve this? Is it hubris? Uh, am I being vain? Uh, am I doing this for my own benefit alone or are the other people involved? To what degree am I sacrificing myself versus getting what I want? I mean, these are all big, challenging conversations that we have with ourselves, and we should. We are, I mean, I call it, we don't have a personality like we're not an I. We are, uh, I call it the me ecosystem. It's me, but it's an ecosystem of balancing perspectives, and we can't just deny or banish elements of ourself we need to get everyone needs to have a seat at the table we need to have discussions and negotiate so i agree with you know what you've said as far as uh, uh inner alters go i don't think that they're 
I think our capacity for them is universal, but I don't believe that they're universal archetypes. Like you and I would have the capacity to internalize a mother, which we should do, right? Because the sexual market value requires the replication of tribal norms. The freaks don't get laid uh, in, in history for the most part. So we would want to internalize the most sexually successful people around us. And of course, the most sexually successful people around us when we're children are our parents because they made us, right? So they were able to reproduce. So our genetics would want us to mirror their behavior as much as possible. And the fastest way to mirror a sexually successful person's behavior, our parents, is to internalize uh, what they, it's like that old song, I want a girl just like the girl who married dear old dad, <laughs> right? And so particularly for most of human history, there was no, you know, now old people look kind of out of touch and befuddled and, you know, is this thing on? You know, this kind of stuff, right? They're, they're, um, they always they hold up the the quick time to their, uh, the FaceTime. They hold up to their ears, and you see their ear, and so on, right? But in the past, of course, they were very successful because society didn't change that much, so they didn't look befuddled. So we do want to internalize the most sexually successful people around us immediately, our parents. So we have that capacity. But your inner mother would be different than my inner mother because of the template. In the same way, we have the capacity for language, but of course, the Japanese kid learns something different from the uh, the English kid. So, um, yeah, I think as far as that goes, uh, I'm I'm in agreement with where you are so far. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think where to go f from here. Um, well, let's go straight to the meat of the matter, which is sex and violence, right? Yes. Um, so, sex, sex and violence, of course, uh, violence has had a long and storied history in terms of the growth of sexuality in society because throughout most of human history before the free market so our genetics they were adapting to the free market and then came the welfare state and everything went kind of haywire so they were adapting to the free market and human evolution can be very rapid just look at the book 10,000 year explosion it's fascinating stuff so throughout most of human history it was kind of win-lose like if you won a resource, your neighbor lost a resource because there was no free market, no personal property rights to speak of that could at least be universally enforced. And so we didn't have the capacity to have win-win negotiations. So if I kill the deer and bring it home to my family, that's one less deer for you to kill. If I claim this particular land and build a house, well, you can't do that now. You can't do that now either, but if I claim this land and, and I'm a great farmer and you're really great at chopping down wood, then we can exchange and so on. But that was at best barter economy and, and money was continually being corrupted by the government in the past. So in the past, aggression. Now, assertiveness is very good for the free market. Aggression is very good for feudalism, communism, socialism, fascism, like all of the hierarchical oligarchies or tribalism that has ruled mankind throughout most of human history. And so the question is for women before the free market, who should they reproduce with? Who should they have sex with? And the answer is, well, the most aggressive guy who won't kill your children, <laughs> the, mo the most aggressive guy around who won't beat you to death with a stick if you don't make him a sandwich in the right way, right? So you want a very, very aggressive man so that he can go out and get the resources, which means elbowing aside other men to get those resources. It means crushing them and beating them and sometimes literally beating them. Or so, And this is why most primitive tribes have these incredibly savage 
initiation rituals. It's designed to be able to pr promote aggression, provoke aggression, and, and kill empathy, to kill compassion, to kill conciliation, to kill niceness. And so for women, they needed the most resources, and it was a very violent society, nature red in tooth and claw, the life that was nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> and so she wanted the most aggressive man out there, so he'd get the resources and give them to the kids. And this is why women have such a soft spot in general for the bad boy. And those guys would produce aggressive children and those aggressive children would grow up to get resources and the nice guys would get, you know, their faces pushed into the dirt. And it really wasn't until the free market that nice guys got the edge. And then nice guys were getting the edge, competent guys were getting the edge, decent guys were getting the edge. And then the asshole said, okay, well, let's just swarm to the state, get a welfare state, and now we're back on top. Now women can go for jerks and aggressive people and so on. Because the guy who's really good at getting resources in a primitive society usually ends up, you know, broke, poor, or in jail in a free society. And so this nice guy friend zoning thing, which is a common complaint of men these days, well, it has a lot to do with all of this. So my point is that uh, sex and aggression, you want a violent guy, but not so violent that he's going to, you know, beat you to death while you're pregnant or beat up the kids to the point where they're disabled. Uh, you know, the, the rip their arms off or something like that. You don't want a complete psycho, but you do want a guy who's very aggressive and very uh, assertive. And that is the relationship, I think, between sex and violence. And women have this fantasy, of course, about the man who is violent towards the world to get the resources for the children, but tender and sweet towards herself. That he's very aggressive towards others, but very protective of his own family. And this is the whole Fifty Shades. This is why the Fifty Shades of Grey character, uh, Christian Grey, he's like one of these weird hypergamy stimulating things. Like everything about him is outsized, so to speak, in terms of stimulating women's desires. It's like those giant eggs that the mama birds can't even tear themselves away from because it's such a stimulus towards what it is. Or pornography for, for, for men and women these days. So, yeah, the relationship between sex and violence historically was quite common, which is why... Um, being on the receiving end of aggressive sexual acts is a very strong fantasy for women. I'm not saying they want to enact it. I'm just saying it's a strong fantasy if you look up the data. So I think this relationship, I wouldn't say that it's continual, though, because, again, when you get a free market, the men who are reasonable, who are nice, who are kind, who are conciliatory, who are rational, who work for win-win negotiations, who have great social skills, who, you know, like a salesman is very different from... Genghis Khan, right? I mean, a salesman is very different from a Viking. If you're in a Viking society, you want the big bearded, fierce eyed, massive muscled psycho who's going to go out there and get resources, but not to the point where he'll beat you half to death, right? Or all the way to death. But if you're in the free market, you want the leave it to beaver dad, like the ward cleaver. You want uh, the nice, reasonable, placid guy who's good at barbecuing, who everybody likes, because that way he can sell them stuff and, and so on. So I don't think that there's one sort of the problem I have with the Jungian stuff and the Freudian stuff, it's like there's one category or one generality about these things, and I don't find that that's the case in terms of evolution. There are times when niceness does a lot better, and there are times when aggressiveness does a lot better, and there are times even when outright violence does a lot better in terms of reproductive strategy. So uh, I hope that gives at least some useful thoughts in that direction. 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I absolutely am in agreement on everything that you just said. Um, one of the things I find fascinating about, about Freudian and Jungian analysis is that I actually find that it, it, uh, it works alongside Darwinian evolutionary analysis and that the two complement one another. Um, one using more uh, symbolic explanations and the other using perhaps more directly scientific explanations. Um, one question or thought I have is, is um, the uh, outsourcing of male violence capacity to military and ever since, you know, for example, ever since the invention of the atom bomb or uh, any kind of technologically enhanced, highly centralized forces of violence, there has actually been an outsourcing of masculinity to a highly centralized group, which would be, for example, in America here, the, the U.S. military. Unlike, for example, uh, you know, in the old days where every, every man was like a militia-type army. Um, and where I'm going with that is I see, I, I see men and women acting out sort of Freudian dynamics viewing the viewing um the the state in a somewhat oedipal fashion like for example when you hear feminists say something along the lines of we want to tear down the patriarchy i act i my hypothesis is is that the the id is the same in both men and women and it is desirous of uh trying to create as much feminine ego and as little masculine ego as possible, and yet in a highly centralized ma uh, manifestation of masculine. Well, I mean, the, the big challenge with war, and I, th I think you bring up an excellent point, so the big challenge with war, if you look at just sort of European cultures, you know, we, we, Europe has, of course, its big challenges with the diversity and so on at the moment, but one of the reasons why the welfare state emerged was that you had two generations of British and European men uh, destroyed in the First and Second World War. You know, why, were this, why was there 20 years between the First and Second World War? Because they needed to raise a whole new crop of men to be chewed up alive by the machinery of war. And so women, and this was a huge, massive shot throughout the Western world, women got married, had their babies with men who then got drafted, dragged off into war and blown to smithereens. And now who was going to take, and then when the men came back, there was a huge imbalance, you know, like uh, 10 million, mostly men died, of course, on the front lines in World War One, And then there was another 20 million, largely men that died in the Spanish flu afterwards. And there's a huge evisceration. So how were these women supposed to raise? their offspring. Well, you've got military pensions and, and death benefits and so on. And that was, a, in many ways, the beginning of the welfare state. And then women say, okay, fine, we're going to grow a whole new crop of children. And then they see those children get chewed up in the Second World War. And more men get destroyed. And then the men who return, there are lots of women there who couldn't find men because the men were, were I mean, if you look at sort of what happens in the inner cities among the blacks, you have 
a situation where it's hard to find a good man because the good men try and get out as quickly as possible or, you know, the, the men who are around, they're, they're in jail, they're on parole, they're in gangs, they're unemployed, they're unemployable fundamentally, they're on drugs or drug. you know, it's a huge mess. And this scarcity of good men occurred because the good men were the honorable men, the strong men, the patriotic men, the decent men, the men who thought they were fighting evil and were willing to stand up. You know, as the old saying goes, the soldier doesn't fight because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him, where he came from. So the good, loyal, case-selected men got wiped out in successive waves, tens and tens of millions of them in the two world wars. And this, of course, was a damn good reason to question what was called the patriarchy. It was a damn good reason to question what was going on. I mean, this was uh, supposedly Christian nations, as Churchill said, did everything in the war except cannibalism and torture, and that's only because those two were of doubtful, u doubtful utility, as he said. So as far as the patriarchy goes, yeah, it was smashing and destroying everything and everyone. And the horrors of those two worlds and the impact upon people's consciousness is hard to overestimate. So there was an imbalance. There were too few men and too many women, and women had to lower their standards. And of course, women were saying, well, we can't trust men to provide for us anymore because two world wars just wiped, wiped them all out. And so we're going to need something more stable to help us survive this. And so this was one of the, whether conscious or not, one of the motivations for the welfare state. Now, of course, once you get the welfare state, then you have a, a situation that is essentially a harem situation. So, and of course, a harem, you have a man with political power, a sultan or a potentate or a mandarin or something, the man who has political power, who gains through his ability to provide resources, the allegiance of dozens or hundreds of young women. And the reason we have a harem situation now is because we have politicians functioning the same as a sultan, functioning the same as a potentate. And what that means is that the women all flock to the man or the men who give them resources. And the number of women who flock is vastly greater than the number of men who provide resources, which is why it's a harem situation where the women's fertility is bought by a tiny number of men with political power. And these are the politicians in a republic or a democracy or whatever it is. The politicians provide resources to the women in return for their allegiance. Now, the allegiance in this case is the vote, is political power. In the past, it was um, a certainty of genetic spreading, right? So in, in any society where the qualities that are the greatest reproductive success are concentrated in a very few men, then you end up with a harem society. Because women always know that the babies are theirs, men don't. And if a man can afford to have 10, 20, 30, or 40, or 50 concubines, then his seed, his characteristics, his personality, his being gets genetically reproduced as quickly as possible if he's kind of ground zero in this radiating shock wave of atomic sperm <laughs> waves. And so right now we have those who are willing to subjugate uh, property rights and independence and liberty for political goodies, then they will vote for those politicians who will offer them those things. And this surrendering of liberty for the sake of resources, when you have many times, in this case, millions of times, sometimes more women than men, it's like a hyper 
harem situation. That's where we are in the West, and uh, that is brutal. Now, in the in the actual harem situation, it's the sultan who impregnates a variety of women. But in this case, what happens is it is not the best who end up impregnating. And by the best, I simply mean the fittest for that. I mean, if some guy's got enough money for 50, to, to hang on to 50 women, he's doing something successful in that society, in that environment. So in this situation, in the past, at least the man who was the most successful in the gathering of resources had the most children. In this case, it's not fundamentally sexual in nature. It's resource-based in nature. And resource and sexuality used to be tied together. A man would give a woman resources in return for access to sexuality, to reproduction. But now, it's not like the, the politician gets to sleep with all these women, which, given that the politician is intelligent and skillful and socially adept, would have a certain amount of Darwinian positivity to it. What happens now is, because the women get resources from the harem, but not impregnated by the politician, they could just have children with whatever trash comes their way. And this is part of the dysgenic aspect of this welfare state post-harem concubine situation. Uh, and indeed, I, I, I'm in full agreement with, with that analysis. Um, I would describe it as a kind of a technologically enhanced form of uh, polygamy, only, as you say, it's fractured in that, as you just explained, it's the resource aspect and the genes aspect are fractured from one another. Um, I mean, really, it's it's closer, but it, it's closer because men are used as, in a sense, serfs, in that serfs would keep some, and even slaves would keep a large proportion of their own productivity. In fact, slaves kept more proportion of their own productivity than most men in a modern democracy, because slaves would keep 60, 70, 80% of their productivity, um, which meant that their tax rates were 20 or 30 or 40%. Uh, but tax rates in many countries are higher than that if you take everything in. But the politician uses the police, the Praetorian Guard, in order to enslave and steal from men in order to buy the votes uh, of women. And um, well, this is all the same stuff that happened in the late Roman Empire, as I've talked about in The Truth About the Fall of Rome presentation. But um, it is what happens when you let loose the demons of violence in the world, when you institutionalize and organize violence. In other words, when violence is overwhelming through the power of the state to the point where people can't reasonably or rationally fight against it without being at grave risk for, for death or going to jail. And going to jail, of course, reduces your sexual market value if you don't want to, I guess, go and inseminate the girlfriend welfare farms. Uh, so this is what happens when principles are abandoned. Uh, when principles are abandoned, uh, dysgenics uh, rules, and you get the eugenics of the downward spiral and then it is the shallowest concerns that drive sexuality, which is why, you know, the prettiest people do well, regardless of their virtue. Because, of course, a man was, was, has, a man's heart has always been turned by a pretty face, but he does have to balance a pretty face with someone who's going to be a good provider, a good runner of his household, who's not going to sleep around, who's got good qualities of character, uh, who's not going to have him raise some kid that's not his and all that kind of crap. And in the same way, of course, you know, women love the tall, dark and handsome man. But in the past, when there was no welfare state, then women would have to pick pretty quickly 
late, you know, late teens, early twenties, the the good men are getting snatched up left, right, and center. So you got to find some guy and you got to nail him down. So to speak, <laughs> you got to lock him down. It's probably a better way of putting it. But now of course, uh, women are because the welfare state and, and a wide variety of other things as well, some feminism, the empowerment feminism and so on. And the fact that jobs are more fun now than they used to be. And therefore motherhood has gone down in value relative to the more fun jobs that you can have and more engaging jobs. And so now women have this big blurry, there's a pot of prints at the end of the rainbow somewhere in my thirties kind of thing. And by the time they get there, I mean, it's like the used car thing. I mean, any used car on the market is probably not very good because all the really good used cars are not on the market. And so any guy who's out there in the 30s, it's uh, probably of questionable quality because um, the women are hanging on like grim death to the guys who are great or hanging on like, like happy wives to the guys who are great. And so this rush for quality, this the reward for virtue, you know, virtue like everything else responds to market incentives. And when you have the forced redistribution of wealth, which is a substitute for a virtuous provider, there's no more stable income provider than the state, at least for the short to medium run in the long term. Long term, it all goes broken, bankrupt and all that. And so a man cannot compete with the state at the lower end, particularly the IQ spectrum. A man cannot compete with the state. I mean, this is one of the horrible things that's happened to the black community. It's happening to the Hispanic community. It's happening to certain sections of the white community, which is that you know how you get these massive waves of illegal immigrants coming in or illegal immigrants coming in, they drive down wages. And this reduces the demand for work, increases the value of welfare. In the same way, when the state provides resources, it reduces the value of character, of reliability, of education, of the deferral of gratification among the poorer classes and the lower IQ classes. And Absolutely brutal for them. Absolutely, there's nothing crueler in the long run. I mean, it's like heroin. Nothing more fun in the short run and nothing more disastrous in the long run. So I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really do appreciate the call. I hope there was some value, and uh, feel free to call back again anytime. Well, thank you for having me, Stefan. Thank you. All right, up next we have Rick, and he's calling in regarding the recent call-in show in video involving a female baby boomer. He says, I'm a baby boomer, 67 years old, born in 1950. I'm quite disappointed in the woman who claimed to represent our generation. In general, I agree with Stefan's assessment of our generation. I do, however, disagree with some key assertions he has made as to how much one generation can be held responsible for the current state of the country's financial predicament. How can boomers be primarily blamed for the looming financial crisis? That's from Rick. Hey, Rick, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. I don't think the woman claimed to represent the boomers. In fact, she seemed to be quite incensed that the term had even been used on my show. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't disagree with that. She didn't make any claim to that, but uh, I was hoping we could make a better accounting of ourselves. Well, I think it's fair to say that the boomers are more responsible than the generations that came after, right? Uh, that's fair to say, but uh, my main point of contention is that uh, it wasn't so much us that it was like uh, the generous, gen, um, greatest so-called gen, uh, greatest generation that uh, primarily put these things in place. And there's the some real truth in that. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. What? There is some real truth in that. Of course, under uh, FDR, there was massive uh, welfare state programs uh, put into place and control over the economy programs, a lot of which required a huge war. Uh, 
you know, it, it's terrible how often it requires a huge war to take down government programs. I mean, it, this is how desperately people cling to them is that they would, you know, maybe after millions of people die, they can see, see their way clear to getting rid of these government programs. But I um, like National Socialism, say. But um, yeah. and of course, the Fed came in in 1913, which, you know, or 1917, it depends on which country you're talking about. Income taxes came in later and so on. So I, I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you. With the difference being, the difference being that the greatest generation, as they're called, you know, they grew up in a boom. They had a massive stock market crash. They went through a 13-year Great Depression. They went through a second uh, world war, the greatest and most horrifying war in the history of humanity. So they did have a couple more excuses than the boomers did in terms of not making some great uh, decisions. And it certainly is true that it would have been easier if these programs had not come into being in the first place. But it is also, and that for that, the greatest generation bears most responsibility, certainly much more, infinitely more than the boomers who weren't even around, as you point out, when this stuff was put into place. However, it's also easier to stop these programs when they're small rather than now, right? Oh, I don't disagree with anything you said. But um, not any one cause of this, so to speak, uh, it, any more than uh, the uh, devil theory explains the causes of World War II. In other words, I think it's a confluence of events that uh, kind of come together. Uh, there wasn't one um, baby boomer that was of voting age when the Great Society, the uh, Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, was put into place. And I kind of, you know, do a breakdown of this, my thoughts of our current financial situation, I would call it 75% on the great society, probably 20, I'll give the feminism. And I think the military, uh, probably 5% there. And it's kind of interesting, but I think I can back those up. But the, the greatest generation are mostly dead, right? Yes, but how do you, okay, here, here's my point on this. How do you turn this around when it's been in place like almost eight years before the first baby boomers were able to vote at all on dealing with this? And I would, uh, okay, but the baby, sorry out. to interrupt, the baby boomers have had, well, depending on how you count it, I mean, I don't know, voting age. 18 or 21 in, in various places, I assume, uh, throughout the West. So if we start the mm -hmm. baby booms, boomers in 1945, then if it's 18, we got 1963, right? And if it's no, 21, it we have 19... No, 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 I'm sorry? The voting age was not 18 at that point. The first uh, election that the baby boomers really had a significant impact would be 1972. Well, no, not from the first baby boom, right? The first baby boom was in the 1944. Well, if the first baby boom, boomers at 21 would have been eligible to vote in 1967. That's right. That's right. That's yes, right. Now, so that's and, and well listen, after. I, I understand that there was less information available, although, you know, von Mises and, and um, uh, von Mises had been out for decades. Uh, Ayn Rand's book by 1967, Atlas Shrugged, had been out for a decade and was very popular. 
uh, at the time. So again, I'm not saying, oh, you're 21. Now you have to turn back all of um, Western history and, and, and go against these programs. But it's certainly, there is some responsibility that grows over the time, right? So let's just say, no, so I'm the 1960, hang that. on, 19, so 1967 yeah. to now, we've got quite, quite a lot of time, right? We got, we got 50 years, 50 years of voting. 50 well, years of voting. Now, are you going to try and tell allowing... me that the baby boomers are not responsible for the voting patterns of the last 50 years that they had power? I'm not denying that, but I'm trying to explain that there's, there's more to it than that. And, and here, here's an example. I'll give you a prime example I, I see. Is, uh, Winston Churchill ran for election in 1945, two months after the victory in Europe. He was the man who defeated Nazi Germany and arguably the men of the century. He lost to the Labour Party which was promoting socialism. So if Winston Churchill can't turn this back at, at, with only two months into it, how do we turn this around? And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I, you know what I mean? I, I, let me just tell you, I have been a warrior to try and turn this around all my life and voted against this. But the problem is with this is most of these elections are swung by less than 5%. Anything over 5% is a, uh, a landslide. So there's a lot of us out there just, uh, you know, taking this battle all along. But when, you know, you're fighting against the single moms and all the people who get the free goodies, that, that margin is very small. And, you know, we try to push it back. But to just, you know, uh, in one blanket statement, say, you know, that it's all our fault, I oh, come on, man. Now, you, you, can't, you can't be taking this personally when I talk about a group as a whole, right? Oh, no, no, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I mean, you, you can't be I, like, because, you know, you can't be like, I'm the tall Chinese guy. You can't be like, you can't be no. that guy. Like, I just <laughs> kind of, you, you're too smart for that to say, well, when I make a generality about the state-sucking, soul-sucking, debt-enhancing, unfunded, liability-whoring <laughs> nature of many of the boomers, you can't say, well, I take that personally because I fought against it. I'm sure you did, and I'm sure a lot of listeners to this show fought against it, and that's honorable. And that is the okay, right thing to but, do, and that is fantastic. You know, But you can't be the, well, I make a collective statement about general trends, and I'm the exception. Well, I mean, the, there's a reason people say the exception that proves the rule. If you are no, notably no, a small government person, right? Then oh, absolutely. And what I what I'd like to add to this is uh, that um, the the real problem in this, and I, if I could take it there, I I, I don't want to cut you off from your point, but uh, I think uh, you, you mentioned Anne Rand and and those there was an abject failure of our intelligentsia, uh, the college campuses. And the way they uh, indoctrinated everybody, uh, we, you know, I, I'm just thinking that had this information been out there, been in the campuses, it, we might have skipped a lot of this. But uh, socialism has been a way that has been embraced. And uh, unless you found out for yourself through either your reading or your independent, uh, you know, uh, seeking of knowledge, it just wasn't there. And there's some people, you know, this this is quite polarizing. From the early seventies, when you know, I no, but started, listen, uh, listen, listen. Yeah, Atlas Shrugged was a massive bestseller for 
a decade before the boomers were able to vote, the first boomers. Mm-hmm. Atlas Shrugged is one of these great touchstones. You know, according to a survey from some years ago, it's the second most influential book other than the Bible. There are very few people who've had no exposure to Ayn Rand and very few boomers I've met who've never, ever heard of her in any way, shape or form. So this information, it's not just her, but it was pretty important. You've got the road to serfdom. You've got uh, Rothbard writing. You've got a lot of people writing. There's the free to choose series, like the, the exposure to free market ideas is powerful and centralized. You, you've got uh, von Mises writing in the early 1920s, disproving the fact that socialism could work. And so there was a big, you got the Libertarian Party who was out there and, and pounding and, and, and talking and speaking. And so there were a lot of people. Like, see, here's the thing. Either people like yourself were one in a million, right? In which case, I'm right, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's so rare. Or, or you guys are like one in 50 or one in 25, in which case either you did the activism and talked about what was needed to be talked about. In which case, the boomers are responsible for not listening, responsible for not listening, because they were exposed to the ideas. Once you get that light turned on in your head, you're now responsible for everything that comes afterwards. Or you guys were common, but you didn't do activism, in which case you're kind of responsible. Now, I think that you guys did do activism. I think you did. I think you did talk to people. I think you did disrupt family gatherings. I think you did. Was it Donald Trump Jr. retweeted something before Thanksgiving? It says, I promise not to, I promise myself not to talk about politics this Thanksgiving. And then three drinks later, it's a picture of all of the founding fathers marching across the landscape. And so I think that there was a lot of information out there. You know, when I, when I was facing off against the boomers, when I was in undergraduate, well, when I was in theater school, when I was in undergraduate in, well, for my series was undergraduate in English, two years, two years almost at the National Theater School, acting, playwriting, a lot of politics there too. Two years at McGill, history degree, undergraduate, a year, hard labor in the salt mines of Kessel, otherwise known as the (laughs) U of T graduate (laughs) history department. And I, you know, when I bring up these free market ideas, the boomers who were the professors and they weren't sitting there saying, my God, man, I've never heard of these things. What, what? Free market, property rights, why do tell me more? I would be thrilled and fascinated to know about these, what is this magical new learning of which you speak, right? They all knew this stuff. They all knew the stuff. Oh, you're just another Randroid. Oh, you're just another objectivist. Oh, you're just some other free market slave sucking exploitation, white, blonde, blue-eyed bastard, right? And so they weren't unaware of what I was talking about. They just held it in hatred and contempt, right? And so, yeah. so when I say the boomers are responsible, it's because at least the boomers I ran into, they knew this stuff. They'd heard about it. They had been aware of these arguments. They had been aware even that these arguments existed. And so the claim, right, because the question is, right, I mean, with regards to Nuremberg, which is obviously a more volatile situation, the Nuremberg Trust, after the Second World War, basically it was, did you have a choice, right? So if you were the rank and file German soldier and you would be shot for not doing something, you were let off the hook. But if you were in charge and you had a choice, then you were guilty. And so the question is, were they in charge? Sure they were. Boomers were in charge. At least 
by the time I got, well, they were in charge of the, um, the teaching positions when I was in school, certainly starting in the late 70s, mid, mid to late 70s, early, early 80s. They were certainly in charge, completely in charge of academics by the time I started going to university in the 80s. And so they were in charge and they were knowledgeable of the arguments that I was bringing forward and they did not provide counter arguments, just scorn and challenging marks, <laughs> so to speak. No, I, I, you'll and no so argument. it's hard for me to say, well, there's no responsibility. Now, of course, for a lot of these programs, they weren't responsible for putting them in place. But can you imagine how much easier it would have been to shut down the welfare state within three to five years of its starting rather than now? Well, no disagreement there, but look at our, uh, our current situation. How many uh, senators and people of Congress have uh, avowed that they would and pledged that they would vote down Obamacare before, uh, you know, um, it took root and uh, we can't do that now. Uh, these weaselly politicians, the best you can do it. And like you said, I, I, I don't know we're not out there. Yes, but who are they appealing to? Who are they appealing oh, I, to? Well, uh, at this point, uh, the millennials in the baby boomers are about equal as far as being in the driver's seat of uh, 31% each of the voting electorate. And who raised who raised the millennials? <laughs> the boomers, of course. And the boomers were but, raised by the greatest generation. I understand the argument goes backwards as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But without the um, kinds of civilization shocking traumas and deaths of tens of millions and nuclear weapons, like without the direct, I mean, aftermath of the First World War, um, the, the uh, stock market boom, the Great Depression, 13 years, Second World War, without all of that, the boomers were handed one of the greatest gifts that any generation has ever received in terms of peace and stability and relative freedom. Well, well there was something called the Vietnam War where we were drafted. So it, 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 as far as uh, we are actually, the boomers were the last uh, generation to be drafted and conscripted to go to war. So, you know, that wasn't all perfect. Well, absolutely. I completely and totally agree. Compared to the Second World War, it was relatively nothing. I mean, I, I hate to put Unless it that way. Of course, there. there's a huge Unless effect. In, but uh, what, did, what did you have, like 70,000-odd Americans dead? Which is terrible. Well, but compared um, to 40 million in the Second World War. And, and the baby boomers were very, very keen on the anti-war stuff while the draft was going on. Well, and then when the draft was let go of, the, they the, were like, meh. The, well, the pushback was against the military-industrial complex. No, the pushback uh, was against know. the draft. Come on. The pushback. So if, if the anti-war, if the anti-war boomers no, had I, remained no, a staunch. I'm not arguing that, but uh, you know, to say that it, it was both, and I must uh, say that um, I am somewhat sensitive to this. I had an older brother killed in Vietnam, so. Right. Uh, no, and I I have uh, family members killed in both Second World Wars. So, I mean, we can match yeah. or dead. That's not an argument either way, though I do, of course, have sympathy. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making an argument. I'm just trying to explain if I don't do well on this point. Because, look, if you look at someone like Phyllis Schlafly, right? So Phyllis Schlafly was a Greatest Generation member. And she set her sights on the Equal Rights Amendment, right? The ERA that said it was going to be mm -hmm. illegal to discriminate in, in U.S. law 
on the basis of gender. And she said, well, this is going to have a whole bunch of negative repercussions. Uh, one, one of which, of course, is that women would be subject to the draft. And she worked tirelessly for 10 years or so to, to make sure that the Equal Rights Amendment was not ratified by the number of states necessary to make it a constitutional change. One woman, mm-hmm. one woman, she crisscrossed the nation, she did endless debates, she wrote books, she wrote articles, she was just a tireless workhorse. Now, whether you agree with it or not, she was very powerful in that and was able to achieve her goals. I'm trying to think in terms of like small government activism where the boomers were regarding that. No, uh, we're complacent. There, there's no doubt about that. I'm not trying to make excuses. Uh, I'm actually quite angry about this too because it affects my uh, my retirement. I have to worry about the whole system collapsing when I'm an old man and you know can't send too well. And uh, you know I feel like I've been robbed of a comfortable retirement, even though I've worked very hard for it. And uh, I detest these people. And you know, Wait, which people? Of action. What? Oh, my people, the the the, the, boomers, the boomers and everybody who uh, you know supported socialism. It's a cancer. It's poison. And there isn't any place that it, that shows up that it doesn't cause harm. So, what's our disagreement? <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. So, no, I'm not I'm sure not where we've diverged. I disagree you. with it, but what? What? It, uh, my, the the point that I'm, I wanted to make. It is very, very difficult to turn these things around. Once a social program is in place, to, to try, it just kind of starts steamrolling and it gains momentum and, and, and it just attaches more and more programs to itself. And no, no, this, I understand you know, all I of that. Look, no, hang on, hang on. Look, I understand all yeah. of that. So then you should have more sympathy for the post-boomer generations who have a much greater momentum to attempt to turn back. But the other question I have is, Yes. And this is what I asked the other boomer, too. So imagine you're a politician who comes along and says, hey, boomers, you wanted your warfare, you wanted your welfare, and you weren't willing to pay the taxes to support it. You had an old age security system, an old age pension system, social security system that you have known for decades has had nowhere near enough money to sustain itself. You have known this for decades. Either you have known about it and ignored it, or you haven't even known about it, in which case you did not fulfill your basic obligations to be an informed voter and not screw the next generation. So there's no money. There's no money in the kitty for your retirement. Sorry, it's all gone because you did not want to pay the taxes necessary for all the things that you wanted, which is why there's a debt. Now, clearly the youngest generation are not responsible for the debt. So if, and so you guys have to give up stuff. You have- no done something irresponsible, you have preyed upon the next generation, if you used your children as collateral to stuff your fat, greasy, porcine faces with every single government goodie that you could lay your hands on, that's wrong, that's immoral, I want your vote. What would happen to that politician's career if he made that very rational argument, perhaps a little less heatedly, to the boomers? Yeah, he'd be thrown out, and I'm quite willing to take the hit. I will take the hit. But that's after we shut up all the foreign aid, all the other free payments to people, subsidies, and whatever. I will take that yet. Even though I've paid in all my life, you want to give me 20 cents on the dollar on Social Security, but shut everything else off, too. Let's do it all. 
but to single out Social Security when uh, I didn't invent it, I was coerced, I was forced to pay into it. You're right, they stole the money, it was under our watch, I'm not disagreeing. But how do we fix it? Where do we go from here? Let's shut it all off, okay? And I'll go with that. But who's going to do that? I have the wherewithal. Well, no, it's not who's going to do that. The question is, why can't it be done? It can't be done because the boomers won't let it happen. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And uh, hang on. The boomers will, will scream blue bloody murder when they were by far the richest generation the world has ever seen. And they are the richest generation the world has ever no seen. Question. And no question with the it. greatest amount of economic opportunities the world has ever seen. And oh, now I, I can... the, very, the very richest generation is not willing to make one single penny of sacrifice in order to save the next generation, to save the children that they have had and the grandchildren that they children have had. They're not willing to make one single sacrifice in their entitlements even though they had vastly more economic opportunities than those who came after them. That is selfish. And that is horrifyingly costly to, to liberty and to the next generation. And I say this because there are boomers out there who have done noble and great things and are in significant need. See, here's the thing. See, people say, oh, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Either we do something, as you know, or math is going to do it for us. Reality is going to do it for us. Now, either there's going to be some huge financial dislocation and people aren't going to get their social security checks or their welfare checks, in which case that is an absolutely, that's like a no wheels landing into the side of a mountain. It is absolutely unmanageable and it's going to result in um, unspecific suffering, generic suffering. Everyone suffers rather than Let's find the people who are the most in need. Let's help them. And let's not help the people who have the most savings, the most resources, the most real estate. And so this continually ignoring of reality is going to harm the most vulnerable in society because there's not enough for everyone. And if we just continue to cross our fingers and pretend that there is enough for everyone, then there is going to be nonspecific disaster, which means that the most vulnerable are going to get harmed the most. And I don't want people starving. I don't want people unable to get access to health care. Of course not. So we either do this proactively and manage it intelligently, or we just wait for the shit to hit the fan, in which case the poor are going to suffer the most. And uh, then, of course, what happens is by this passivity, and this was what kind of bugs me most about the boomers, is this passivity. Just cross your fingers. We're close enough to the end, barring some you know, we would have already collapsed if it wasn't for computers. And I think, uh, okay. go ahead. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. I think we, um, you know, I, I'm looking for solutions on this because, you know, I was on the minority that fought this. But the problem is, like I, uh, as I mentioned before, most of these elections, the tipping point of it going either way is only, you know, four or five percent, you know, or there. But, you know, uh, I think now we have a, an a unbelievably um, uh, fortuitous opportunity. I think we are in a, in a flexion point because in the past we would vote for these politicians that promised to do this. Uh, George Bush, 
you know, the Republican doubled the debt. And, you know, and Reagan actually kind of started this. If you look at the history of these spending uh, patterns that, that it started to go off the charts during the Reagan administration. But we have now something called the Internet where people can be held accountable. And I want the information to get out there. You know, I, I try to be you know, somewhat of an evangelist of, of spreading the word and getting it out there. And now that we have uh, a means to communicate, uh, I strongly tell people support your show and all these other uh, Chernovich and uh, these other people get the word out. We've got to get it out there, because, you know, in order to avoid this disaster. But yeah, listen, I mean, for me, it, it comes so down to one people. simple thing. Hang on, hang on. What? For me, it comes down Go to ahead. one simple thing. Who is responsible for my daughter being do- born a million dollars in debt? She is born a million dollars or so in debt, in unfunded liabilities, promises made on her behalf to other people. She has had nothing to do with it. She's eight years old, for God's sakes. Why the fuck is she a million dollars in debt? Why is she born into slavery? Financial slavery to the elderly. It's not her fault. The greatest generation, mostly dead. The people who've had the most influence for the longest are the boomers. Now, this doesn't mean all boomers. I don't need to insult your intelligence by saying any of that. But somebody's responsible. Now, I'm taking as much responsibility as I humanly can by fighting as hard as I can and as publicly as I can and as riskily as I do about the realities of the world. Someone is to blame. Now, each individual can come up to me and say, well, I I fought it and I'm not. Somebody's to blame. It's not my daughter. It's not me. It's not you. But it's someone. And it's a whole lot of those people. So I'm going to move on. Hang on. I'm going to move on to the next caller. But I really do appreciate uh, the call in. And thank you for the work that you've done for the cause of freedom over the course of your life. Okay. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have John. John wrote in and said, Me and my girlfriend of five years first met when we started a Young Americans for Liberty chapter. We recently broke up with one of the big reasons being our differences in opinion on immigration. She is a Mexican-American with some of her family being here illegally. I am a Trump-supporting ANCAP born to MAGA. Well, she is an open-border, hard ANCAP Trump skeptic. Should I follow through with my threat to call ICE on her stepfather, who is here illegally, and who sexually abused her as a child, giving her major depression? That's from John. John, that is quite an email. Let me just tell you that right up front. Hi, Stefan. How you doing? I'm, I'm well. For those who don't know, ANCAP, a narco-capitalist. It means no state as a central organizing principle of society, negotiation, and uh, rules organically developed through the free market rather than a massive or any kind of, of government. That's uh, an anarcho-capitalist. There are anarchists who are socialists or communists because they don't understand what anarchist means. Anarchist means without rulers. It doesn't mean without rules. And in fact, the argument is that when you have rulers, as you can currently see with Mueller's FBI investigation, when you have rulers, you have no rules. So I just wanted to point that out. That's what the ANCAP, I love this, born to, baby, we were born to MAGA. It's just like the, <laughs> the uh, Springsteen song. Um, okay. That's, that's, that's quite a tale. Um, so her stepfather raped her as a child. Yeah, over 
the course of uh, several years growing up, um, she was sexually abused by her stepfather and a few of her uncles. Um, so she suffers from, you know, a lot of depression that would uh, come up in our arguments um, throughout our relationship where, I mean, she would just completely break down and, you know, be suicidal at some points. And, uh, you know, it was really hard working with her and getting her through that. But um, it wasn't until we met that she actually gained the courage to talk to her mother about these things because her mother was apparently unaware of all of this, <clears throat> which my mom is kind of skeptical of. She said that, you know, there's no way no mother doesn't know that that's going on. So I, I don't know, but um, it, it has affected our relationship and... Um, you know, the immigration debate has been coming up a lot. Oh, uh, listen, no, no, fuck the immigration debate. I mean, sorry. Mm -hmm. You have a pedophile around? Uh, I, 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 the other, uh, sorry, my, my, my glottal stops are paralyzed with the shock. The other uncles, are they also in the country? The other rapey uncles, the child rapists? Yeah, and I believe they are here illegally as well. So, to me, the issue is not primarily, it's not primarily, are they in the country illegally? The issue is, mm -hmm. did they rape a child over the course of several years? That seems to me yeah. a little bit more important, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Right. Now, having them in the country, it's almost like they're not sending their best when you think about it. Having them in the country, do you think that exposes more children to risks of being raped? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't like I have I've gone over her house and I, I haven't really had a chance to talk to him. I mean, I shook his hand once, which was kind of awkward. No, 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 I don't know. I don't know where you're going at this point. Let's go back to my question. <laughs> I don't know where you're jetting off to with your jetpack of dissociation here. My question is, my friend, having these child rapist pedophiles in the country, is that exposing more children in the country to risks of being raped? Yeah, I would say so, yes. Right. Do you think that's an important consideration? Yeah, most definitely. And I uh, kind of had it handed to me on Reddit when I asked Reddit the same question. And, um, you know, they were all like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, you should call ICE on these guys. Um, but someone. They're child rapists, dude. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't it whatever you do to get them out of the environment and protect the children? Is, is yeah, and that's where I guess uh, statute How long have you known about this for? Uh, well, I've just recently learned that her stepfather did this, um, but I, it's apparently, you know, this was like 20 some odd years ago that this all happened to her growing up in her house. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, have these people improved at all? Are, are they still doing what they're doing? You know, I don't know. I've never met them. You know, her uncles, I've never met. Um, I, I just know all this from the story she's told me. And I told her that, look, you should call ice on them. You know, well, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what 
agency, you know, I mean, that's all kind of illegal. I don't know what the statute is, you know, whatever it is, but does she think that they should stick around and and just be around American children? Is this this her plan to have these guys just kind of hang out in America and do what they want? Yeah, I don't know. She thinks I'm I'm the crazy one. And I think she's really doing it to, to protect her mother. From what she told me, her mom is, you know, dependent on this man, his income, and to take care of her brothers, one of which is autistic. So, you know, she's like, don't, you don't need to be involved in this. I'll take care of it. This is my family's problem. And, no, 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 uh, no, 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 no. Fuck that, man. It's not her family's problem for two reasons. Number one. Taxpayers have to foot the bill for all these predations. Number two, she told you. Once she tells you, you don't get to put it back in the box. You understand, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, our relationship is pretty much done. No, you guys are broken up. You guys are broken up. Let's get back to the mom. The mom. You know, I forgot. I no, I was unaware. I'm blind. I'm an idiot. I'm Helen Keller when it comes to stimulus around what's going on. I mean, I I've never been afforded that kind of luxury to just say, well, I had no idea. Right? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. I was I forgot the test was today. Too bad. You get an F. I forgot to deliver the newspapers when I was doing my paper route. Too bad. You're in trouble. I forgot the essay was due today. Too bad. Right. So this I forgot. I didn't notice. I didn't know. It's your job to know. It's your job to know. You know, if you're a lawyer and you just don't read the section of law for the law court, well, does that mean everyone says that's totally fine? No problem. Yeah, no problem. I'll pay you anyway. Sure. No problem. I got a whole big complicated real estate conversation you told me that you were going to deal with it as a lawyer and then you never read up anything on real estate law and you completely cocked up the case but here i'm going to pay you anyway and you're going to be my lawyer for the next one because it's kind of your job when you're a lawyer to competently know the law that you're claiming to represent someone for right now as a mother job one number one job a number one job protect your children right Protect your children. Now, if her mother says, well, I had no idea, then she's saying she is a terrible enough mom that she had absolutely no idea what her daughter was like before being raped and after being raped. You understand? Yeah. Can you imagine you've got some girlfriend, this is adults, you've got some girlfriend, a sunny, bubbly, happy personality, one night, She's brutally gang raped. And the next morning you notice absolutely nothing different about her. Nothing whatsoever. Wouldn't that be insane? Could that even remotely be believed by any human being? I had no idea my girlfriend was gang raped last night. Never crossed my mind. Never had any idea that this had happened to her. I, I didn't notice any change whatsoever. Bullshit. Yeah, it makes no sense to me, like how her mother cannot know what's going on. It makes no sense because it's bullshit. Hmm. And so that's where, you know, my girlfriend was. She can tell because, and this is why 
treating women equally is considered sexism, right? I mean, it's considered sexism because this is a completely unbelievable story. Complete. You have no, you have no idea that the man is a pedophile. You have no idea that for years he and his brothers were raping your daughter. No idea whatsoever. Well, it doesn't matter. It's still your job to know, and it's still your job to figure it out. And if you don't even, like the idea that you don't even notice your daughter before and after being raped as a child, no difference, no difference, no change whatsoever, no change in mood. She's just as sunny the next day. As, come on. Oh, come on. I mean, the, the most insulting thing about the world, of course, is just how much bullshit you're expected to swallow with a straight face. Yeah. It's, it's, come on. Nobody can believe this. Nobody in their right mind can believe this. And don't just say it's weird. It's not weird. Bullshit. Yeah, and it tears her apart that, you know, this is, you know, she doesn't know her real father. And um, so she really doesn't have any other family to turn to. Her mom is really, you know, her, her by her side, you know, her best friend. And now she's got this, her mom. you know, okay. betrayal. Well, hang on. The mom is dependent on the stepdad, right? Yes. So basically the family compact seems to be, in my humble opinion, Sure. You can rape my daughter, and your brothers can rape my daughter, but I'll need to see some money. Am I wrong? That way. No. I don't think I'm wrong. Isn't that the basic transaction? Yes. Sure. Go, go into the back room, rape my daughter, but I'm going to need to see some money on the table. Yeah, I was upset with her mother how she handled it when... Uh, finally got the courage to you know tell her and you know she I, I don't know what kind of talk she had with him but they sure as hell didn't you know separate he's still in the house it's like how do you even stay with a man that you know raped your daughter well for for the money right yeah yeah <laughs> for the money yeah and don't forget no names in the combo sir so I mean, man, what are you doing in the orbit of this anyway? What are you, what are you doing? What, what are you doing being around this at all? Like, you're in now, and you know it now, so you got to do something, but yeah. geez alive, what are you doing? What are you doing in, in this fucking dungeon of depravity and satanic child rape? And Like, what are you doing? Well, well I tell you why, what, why, it's is this even, why are you even in the neighborhood of this shit, of this filth? Well, she, when we first got together, she's an amazing person, you know, beautiful personality. And we hit it off right right off at the start, starting a libertarian club together. And we became ANCAPs together. And we had the same quirky, you know, it, likes and comedy and movies and all that, you know. But it, it really has taken a toll on me. Okay, um, dude, dude, you're not... You're not talking to an idiot here. You know that, right? Like I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. So are you trying to tell me that this woman who's Stockholm Syndrome bonded to a woman who basically pimped her out as a child in return for money, that she's just great, wonderful, sunny personality, no personal problems, no psychological issues, everything oh, is just fine. Yeah, no. Come on. It's not sunny like that, that's for sure. No. Didn't you say that she was suicidal? Yeah. When uh, did you find that out? When did you find that out? 
like it about after of a year. Well, she's got cut marks on her wrist, so I kind of knew. Wait, something. Was so when up you first met her, she had, she was a cutter, right? So she had cut marks on her wrist when you met her. Mm-hmm. So what are you trying to tell me? This like sunny personality shit, man. Come on. Come on. Are yeah, we going to be real here, or are you just going to sell me a bill of goods? I'm telling you, she's one of the most intelligent people you'd ever meet, and she's just got that deep down, definitely dark side. You know, she's been through some shit kind of deal, but I mean, literally one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, and I, I loved her for that. I loved her for her beautiful mind. Beautiful mind who bonds with a woman who pimped her out for money. That's what you admire. These are the virtues. And who wants to protect the men who raped her as a child. This is the beautiful virtue that you find so admirable. Come on, man. She was pretty. You were lonely. Maybe your sexual market value is not the highest, but let's be honest about this, okay? Come on, don't don't sell me this. Because you know what's so dangerous about what you're doing? What you're doing is you're doing what her mom did, which is saying there's been no effects of the rape on her, no effects of the childhood rape on her. She was a wonderful, great, amazing, funny, brilliant person. Mm-hmm. You, you're re-inflicting this shit that the mom did. And yeah. now you're trying to spread it through my show to my listeners. Bullshit. Don't try that. Do not use my show to spread your self-contempt for getting involved in this mess. Do not inflict your dissociation and your self-justifications on my damn listeners. That is not right. That is not fair. You got involved with a cutter who'd been raped as a child, and you're trying to sell her as some great woman. Come on. Don't do that. You made a mistake. You got involved in a very dark and subterranean, a dysfunctional, evil, satanic family. And you can't admit that to yourself. You can't figure out why you did it. So you're trying to sell a bill of goods through my show to my listeners on my time, on my dime. No. No, 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 no. You can either tell me if you want. You don't have to. You can do anything you want. Ask can I. You can either tell me what was wrong in your history that you ended up in this place. Or I can move on to the next caller, but I'm not, I'm not accepting this bill of goods that you're trying to sell me. I know too much. I know I mean, this is too obvious to anybody outside yourself. Yeah, I think um, the right relationship prior to hers, I was with a beautiful girl who, you know, had the looks, we had the chemistry, the physical attraction was there, but... She was a little bit, you know, empty-headed, I guess you could say. And I was looking for something different. I wasn't looking for the blonde hair, blue eyes, supermodel. I wanted someone who I could connect with on, you know, a deeper level. And I felt like, you know, that's what I got. See, now you're trying to sell me this shit again. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but you, you cannot connect at a deeper level with somebody who is defending and justifying child rape. That, it, that that is not possible, you understand. Look, I'm not saying that men or women who were raped as children or damaged goods forever, 
but not if they're this morally confused and Stockholm syndrome to the point where she is defending and bonding with the men who raped her as a child and the woman who did not protect her. Please don't tell me you had some deep and meaningful connection with somebody that messed up morally and emotionally. That colluding with child rape, that unaware of what happened to her and the morals of it. Come on. Please don't tell me that there was some big, deep and meaningful connection with someone like that. That's not believable. Come on. Yeah, so I'm just trying to reconcile, you know, where, wh- how do I find the right girl? It, how do I find the right woman for me? Well, stop praising the wrong girls. That'll help. Like you can say, you could say to yourself, which is the kind of like the ice water I'm trying to throw on your balls here, right? Because you're thinking with your cock, right? You're not thinking with your wisdom, your mind, your brain, right? Even your heart. Right. You ended up in a situation where you are in squalid possession of knowledge of multiple counts over many years of child rape and a mother who took money from the rapists, right? Now, if you don't sit there, look in the mirror and say, how the fuck did I end up here? And I don't think you've had that shock yet, that moment of like, what the, what the, what the, what am I doing here? Why am I with, why am I around these people? Why am I privy to this horrifying knowledge? Why am I in this environment? Why have I shaken the hand of a serial child rapist? Why is the best that I can do in the dating market a suicidal self-cutter defender of those who raped her and enabled the rape? Is this really the best you can do? This no, is the I don't highest think you it. can aim for? No, but I, I think I definitely do struggle with, you know, my own insecurities and, you know, there's a lot of things I have to work on personally, but before I can go pursuing another mate in life, but well, and, and I, I this is I've why I'm saying, so stop, stop selling to me and to others and to yourself how great this woman was. She is endangering children by not acting against those who raped her when she was a child. Right? She is rewarding with her time and attention the mother who took money, and I would argue knew something was wrong, but refused to look into it because mucho dinero. Why a, like, what, a, what a nightmarish existence that you live romantically. Why are you within a thousand light years of these kinds of people? And did you have people in your life who knew about this, who you was, were aware and you said, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dating this woman. Oh, I want to date this woman. She's got scars all up and down her arm. She's a cutter, probably suicidal. What do you think? And did everyone say, yeah, seems good. Go for it. Do you have anyone around you who's watching your back, who's punching you in the dick so that you don't dip your wick in crazy and evil? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a subject that I keep kind of to myself. You know, I don't tell a lot of people about. And so I haven't been able to get this kind of advice or I guess, you know. So why don't you why don't you tell people if she's such a wonderful woman? Why didn't you tell people? 
I thought I could help her. I thought we could make something out of nothing or something that was that could grow. But I mean, I realized why? I why choose her? Just... Why choose her to fix over everyone else that you could have had? Why choose her? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Why her? Not too many libertarian females out there, and the one, the other ones I ran into were just kind of off their rocker as well, too. So, right. And so, so clearly, a verbal commitment to libertarian ideology is not enough. Choosing a woman based upon her verbal approval of libertarian ideology is not going to keep you safe. No, you're right. I mean, I need to find someone who's physically and mentally stable. That way I can be physically and mentally stable as well. For sure. I understand. I don't that. like I don't I know I don't know if you know what kind of danger you're in. You are in possession of the kind of knowledge that people kill for. Oh, they kill. Yeah, Reddit, let me know. <laughs> okay, good. Good. So please don't tell me that there's something good about all of this. Yeah. I just got to get over that fact myself. And you're right. I got to look myself in the mirror and tell myself I can do better. Well, if you can't, then don't. <laughs> like, go join a monastery or the French Foreign Legion or something like that. If you can't do better than this, right? Yeah. And you also need to ask yourself why you're so damn isolated that you can't get any decent advice or feedback from people. Why isolation for men in particular is a very, very big problem in society and a very, very big reason why men often make these terrible, terrible decisions. Yeah, yeah I'm slowly coming out of my isolation for sure. Ever since we kind of gone our separate ways, I've been talking more with my brother, friend, reconnecting with my dad and you know other people that when you go into a relationship, just kind of fall to the wayside. So it's definitely no, nice no, no, to... wait, no, no. They don't fall by the wayside. Don't give me this passive stuff. Mm -hmm. You made the choice, right? They don't just fall by the wayside like they accidentally fell out of a car. You make the choice to not talk to people, right? And what did your girlfriend say about you spending all your time with her and not talking to your family? What did she say about that? Um, well, my family is kind of broken up all over the U.S. really, so it's kind of tough to have close family oh, time. Oh, my us. God, man. Oh, my God. Yeah, because there's no such thing as a telephone or Skype or anything like that, right? What did she say about you not talking to your family? Um, nothing, really. Yeah, so she didn't have any problem. With you not talking to your family, in fact, she may have encouraged it subtly, right? Mm. Mm. So yeah. are you saying that for five years you were with this woman, you didn't have much contact with your family? Uh, I mean, just not as much as I'm, I'm used to, you know. Uh, my brother moved away. We were really close, and now we're reconnecting. My mom's still in New York, and so I only get to see her once hey, a year. Me, don't give me geography. Don't give me names. All right. Um, okay, so your family's but, scattered, but what does that have to do with anything? 
I mean, it's just technology age, right? It's the communications age, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Did, did, yeah. did your family ask you about this girlfriend of yours at any time over these half decade? Yeah, but very little. I guess they all also struggle in their relationships. You know, my mom and my father are, they're, they're at, in and out of relationships as well, you know. And I don't know if I'm like just the product of that. And oh, So they separated and now they're just dating all over the place? Yeah, both of them. Well, my mom has two divorces. My dad has now three. Jesus Christ. The hell's the matter with them? I don't know, man. <laughs> you don't know. They should have just stayed together, my mom and dad. If you met them both, you'd just be like, oh, yeah, you guys belong together. But they didn't. They went their own way, and my mom went back to New York with me. Well... I would suggest go talk to a therapist. Talk to a therapist and figure out what kind of crazy templates you got in terms of relationships, right? Figure out what the hell's going on in terms mm -hmm. of relationships, right? Because mm -hmm. where you have ended up is not normal. A half decade with a suicidal, completely unprocessed, abuser-defending victim of child rape? Jesus Christ, man, that is way off the grid. That is way off the map. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Well, I just may have needed to hear that. So thank you very much. All right. Well, make your decisions, but talk to a therapist first. Um, and I really, really appreciate right. you Yeah, I appreciate you too. Thank you, Stefan. All right. Thanks, man. And and get, get these child abusers out of the country, for God's sakes. For God's sakes. Protect the children right. in your local regime. All right. Thank you very, very much. And uh, let's move on to the next caller. All right, up next we have Carter. Carter wrote in and said, Empathy, as it is commonly practiced today, has been corrupted by a neo-Marxist thought. Rather than being the premise by which two parties establish reciprocal affection for each other, it has instead been used as a political weapon where one party browbeats another into submission using emotional abuse and ostracism, i.e. marginalized minorities versus the white man. The concept behind empathy has been put at the forefront of my mind lately, both through observing the current political climate and also from the negative treatment I have received from my family for sharing these observations. If one party refuses to reciprocate empathy while demanding it of the other, is there any point in trying to salvage the relationship? Is there any way that this state of affairs, both in relation to myself and the West in general, ends without devolving into conflict? That's from Carter. Hey, Carter. How's it going? Not too bad, Steph. How about you? Oh, it's going well. Thank you. It's going well. Is there a personal relationship that is falling into this category for you? Um, I definitely would have to say more my dad is where I've been having this issue with. Like, Because uh, with my mom, uh, I can have disagreements with her, but... It, it remains civil. Like, uh, she just, she'll just bring up her point and then I'll say mine. I'm uh, encounter to hers and then we get along nicely. But it's more with my dad. He's, he's kind of like really one of those hardline anti-Trumper kind of guys. And, uh, and it's definitely there where the friction has been for the past two years. That just wasn't there before. You know, uh, let me just do a little thing here. 
I don't know if this relates to your dad or not. I can't help but notice that the people who attack Trump the most seem to have the most to hide, seem to have the worst conscience, seem to have the most skeletons in their closet. You know, like the mainstream media, Hollywood attacking Trump. He's a sexual predator. Well, lift the lid on their hellscape of sexual predation. And it looks like the old maxim accuse people of what you yourself are doing seems to be holding true. If you look at uh, the um, rhinos, Republicans in name only, ah, he's not a real conservative. Well, now that he's doing conservative stuff, they themselves are revealed as not real conservatives. And if you look at, I mean, it's the same thing with these male feminists who so often turn out to be feminism is the grass. They are the tigers. They hide, get close to pounce on these women. They hate Trump. And it just has really struck me. The FBI investigating Trump for corruption, for collusion. Turns out a lot of corruption and collusion coming out of the FBI. So if this is not too far out there as a hypothesis, what does Trump, or I guess more specifically, what do Trump's policies, is there any way in which they have negative repercussions for your father? Is there anything that might be revealed? Not really. I mean, not, not that I can think of because we're like, we're, we're not Americans. We're up in Canada. So, I mean, it's more, it's more just the media bandwagon, I'd say more than that. And then to kind of address the, the sort of, uh, you know, the whole, the whole leftist thing where uh, you accuse other people of what you're doing, I'd say that maybe there's an element of that, but not, but not really malicious in oh, like not in a sort of like not in a sort of like malice filled way that can be compared with like the sexual predators i think usually what happens in the conversations is maybe i'll bring up a point that he doesn't like or maybe i'll uh i'll say well like um let me try and think of an example like during the during the election, I remember when uh, I remember when Hillary um, uh, um, had her had her falling out of the van moment, and then I remember I was a little bit snarky about it. I was just I was just saying, oh, did you see what happened to Hillary there? And then uh, and then he got a little bit he got a little bit upset with it, and then kind of went into kind of went into reason, um, and then kind of went into you know the whole uh, well, Trump said you know, all Mexicans are rapists and it's a horrible thing that this is happening to Hillary. The country could be turned open, uh, turned over to this, uh, to this awful, evil, horrible person. And usually in these conversations, it's, uh, usually he doesn't really hear my viewpoint on it. Usually if I say something that he doesn't like or doesn't go with sort of a general media narrative, he, he sort of reacts in a not in a pretty emotional way towards that and like usually what he'll do is he he accuses me of being the victim while maybe uh while while uh you know playing the victimhood card for the poor poor immigrants poor refugees that sort of thing so he's kind of an emotionally manipulative crime bully yeah that, that would sorry be to be so yeah. blunt but you know life, life yeah short. yeah um mm -hmm. does he work for the government 
Um, uh, for, well, for the first part of his life, he, uh, um, he didn't. And then later, and then later on he did, but now he doesn't. And I have a big family. So, uh, so he, uh, stays at home and helps with them now. You have a good one. Sorry. I have a big family. So he stays home and helps with them. So the last job that he has was for, was for the government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's collecting a government pension then to some degree, right? Uh, not as far as I know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't. I mean, he worked for the but, government, uh, but not getting a pension. What do you? Unless he was a contractor, I, I don't quite follow that. Yeah, I honestly don't. I, I, I honestly don't know. I'd have to look into it more because uh, it was a little bit spotty. Because with my family, we had uh, like with uh, like my first um, uh, like with, there were twins, and they came along, and then he took some time off. So I, I don't know. I, I, I can't. Wait, there were twins. Like, know. sorry, I'm getting real confused here. You're, they were, you have siblings who are twins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and he then they and came your mom is still together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still together. There's, uh, there's not really any issue, issues there. Like they've been, uh, they've been dating ever since they were in high school and they've been happily married for three decades. So what does so. he, uh, what does he live on? What's his uh, My mom, my mom, uh, my mom is the real breadwinner in the family and she, uh, and, and she works really hard and does, uh, and does very well for herself. And she works in the, in the free market. Yeah, she's been in the private sector her whole life, yeah. Right, right. So he worked for some time for the government, and now he's dependent upon your mom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, what is his social circle like? What are his friends like in terms of their politics? Um, I, I'd say generally probably the same. I think it is. I think there is a bit of a, a bit of an echo chamber going on there. Just, uh, just kind of like, I mean, the rest of my family and just my extended family as well. They're not, they're not big on Trump, but it's not, uh, but they're not as, uh, aggressive in it or they don't bring it up as much because I've had, uh, conversations like this before with my grandparents and, uh, and they're, and they're just kind of like my mom. They're, uh, they don't agree with me, but they're able to listen to me and, and consider my point. So, Whereas your father is aggressive and hostile. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And was he like that with Harper as well? Sorry? Was he like that with Stephen I, Harper as well? Not that I'm putting Harper in the same category as Trump. He's no, not. No, no. No, no, no. Uh, no, really not. Um, uh, he, he, he really liked Harper. I mean, that's the thing is that my family is if anything, I'd say we're kind of red Tories and like for the Americans listening, it's kind of like, you know, you're sort of Romney kind of Republicans, uh, that sort of thing that like, uh, that like we believe in like, uh, just sort of my family in general is, uh, you know, cutting back on taxes and like cutting back on regulations and that stuff. But when it comes to, uh, when it comes to pensions or welfare, as it relates to single mothers or, uh, or, or immigrants or refugees, then, then that's where they more fall in line with the liberals. Right. So let me ask you this. If your mother was admiring of Trump, if your mother really admired Trump, I mean, Trump is very masculine, right? Mm -hmm. And your father, again, to be blunt, <laughs> does not strike me as overly masculine. You know, emotionally manipulative, a crime bully, you know, doesn't have an income, depends on your 
mom and is a caregiver to an extended family. And, you know, these other than the emotional manipulative bullying stuff, it's not like he's making any arguments. He's not like he's got hard data. It's not like he's got facts. And so he does not strike me as overly masculine. Uh, is that a wrong, the wrong way to put it? I mean, is, is the, does, he, does he at least like really into working out and, you know, like, does he love motorbikes? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't no, know. Like, whatever, no, I like, think, no, no, no. I think it's more, I think it's more kind of, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, white knighting is, is what I'd say is that he's trying to, is that he's trying to stick up for the little guy because he is uh, like, you know, it's not like he's most no, masculine guy juggling. Mm-hmm. No, but a masculine guy doesn't want to stick up for the little guy. It doesn't mean that yeah, you're, no, you're careless I mean, and callous and don't care or anything like that. But it's mm-hmm. sort of like if you're in a, if you're a guy, and this is true for competitive people as a whole. If you're in a race, like if you're in a running race, you run to win. Yeah, you know this this idea. Well, you know the guy who loses is going to feel real bad, so I'm going to slow down. You do that with kids. You know, like I'm a, I'm a very fast swimmer. Like I was on a swim team and I was like in the top 10 in Ontario back in the day. And when I'm teaching my daughter to swim fast, I'm not going all out. I'm pacing her. I'm encouraging her. You know, it's what you do with kids. It's not what you do with adults. I didn't do that when I was racing (laughs) in, right. And I think I was only in the top 10 because a bunch of guys didn't show up anyway, (laughs) but, um, it's, it's not, you know, if you're, you're in it to win it. And so this idea that you don't care about the little guy, well, if you lower your standards, you just end up harming everyone, including the little guy, right? So mm-hmm. if your mother found Donald Trump to be very interesting, maybe even a little sexy, and don't get me wrong, a lot of women do. Mm-hmm how would that place your father in the hierarchy of her values? Yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't think he'd, he'd take it well, if anything, like, you know, if, if how, if how, you know, our relationship has been for the past two years is anything to go off of it. Probably there would be some friction there for sure. So he's not doing it for empathy, because he ha- if he had empathy, he would be curious about your perspective, right? He'd want to know why you believe what you believe, and he'd be he'd have empathy for how you ended up in this particular situation and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And there are times, psychologically, speaking mostly for myself, I hope that this includes you to some degree, but there are times where we are very much drawn to the opposite of our parents. So, and yet there may be similarities, but but for me, like it was my mom, versus Ayn Rand, right? And as my mom said, she said, well, for many years there, I felt that Ayn Rand had become your mother. Well, she said, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. I needed some, someone different and something different. And this is why when I found that there were some similarities between my mother and Ayn Rand in terms of vengefulness, in terms of pettiness, in terms of coldness and lack of empathy, particularly in romantic or sexual matters, that was devastating but that's a topic for another time but um i was definitely drawn to the ayn rand of the books because you know rational and objective and not manipulative and heroic and and uh, brave and and so on and and follow through i mean my mother wanted to write a book one woman's century she was going to call it she wanted to write a book for at least 20 years she wanted to write the book of her life 
I was the one writing books. It's like, just write the book. You've got time. Not overburdened with employment or anything. So, but never did. Whereas, you know, of course, Ayn Rand spent like 13 years writing Atlas Shrugs, half decade writing The Fountainhead. Hardworking, dedicated. And so, there may be a tug of war in your father's heart, and maybe even in your heart as well, where your father is saying, how could you admire someone who's so much the opposite of me? He may take it personally. Now, rather than being curious, he's getting offended and upset and kind of bitchy, I think. But it may have something to do with a feeling like he's not a sufficient role model for you. He's not, like, if you think of the amount, like the amount of abuse that is hurled at Donald Trump is seismic. It is like, it's like a Krakatoan-based force of nature, the amount of abuse that is hurled at that man. And he's, you know, he's still positive. He's still enthusiastic. He's, you know, still all, you know, just keeps going, right? And your father can't handle a negative opinion that you have that's not even about him. Or a positive opinion you have that goes against some of his opinions. So maybe, just maybe, there's kind of like an alpha-beta competition going on in his mind. Because it is very weak. It is very weak to use emotions in place of arguments. To bring your feels to a fact fight, it's very weak. And it, it indicates a profound feeling of humiliation about your own intellectual capacities, and it's combined with a profound laziness about the willingness to improve upon your own intellectual deficiencies. It is very weak, very weak indeed. I mean, I get this, I see this in the YouTube comments sometimes, you know, Steph, I feel that, nope, you lost me. <laughs> I feel that, you feel, feel, feel. Ah. You know, feels of a groping, not thinking. <laughs> And so maybe there's this <clears throat> going on. And as far as empathy goes, no, you don't give empathy to people who don't give it to you. You don't give empathy. I mean, to come to white countries and complain about white people is clearly not empathetic, right? Uh, clearly. I mean, it's the race and IQ stuff completely explains it. You know, this great paradox of why Whites are what, like eight, nine percent of the world's population. Why does everyone want to move to white countries and then scream racism at white people? Well, for obvious reasons. They can't replicate replicate the success of white countries in their own home countries because of the IQ problem. But if they get to white countries and they scream racism at white people, white people will give them resources. It's funny how when you pay people to scream racism at you, you get more and more people screaming racism at you. Funny how that works. It's almost like there's such a thing called economics and incentives. And, you know, I have this, uh, we all have this button, this button called, but don't you care about hat? You know, people are hungry in the Congo. Don't you care? Don't you want to do something about hungry people in the Congo? But here's the thing. I'm out. Like I've, I've said, that, like I'm out. I'm just, I'm way out. I'm, I'm done. I'm done and dusted. Because... Nobody's cared about my feeling calling me a patriarchal pig and a racist and a all these 
phrases and, and words and this language and so on that's used. And I'm not talking about recently. I mean, I'm talking about like as I was growing up. I got my white privilege. I got my patriarchy. I got my racism. And nobody cared about my feelings. In fact, they kind of relied on the fact that I cared about these things in order to manipulate control and steal resources from me. So I get when empathy is being used to control me and I have strangled that baby in the crib. I will not let it happen anymore. I also know that my daughter is going to grow up in a world where she's going to be called white privileged. And because she's probably not going to be on the left, she's going to be subjected to all of the horrible abuse that women not on the left are subjected to. Nobody cares about her feelings. Nobody cared about the feelings when she's born a million dollars in debt. Nobody cares about whether she's going to really enjoy government schools or not. Nobody cares about any of that stuff. So I will not care more about a world than it cares about me. And the world has historically, you know, I got beaten up by my mom regularly as a child and lived in these apartment buildings with these very thin walls. Nobody, nobody cared. I've talked about child abuse, the child abuse I experienced on this show. I've talked about it for years. Very few people show any particular concern or empathy or sympathy. I mean, the listeners, sure, and I appreciate that. But, you know, the world as a whole. And the number of horrible terms that are launched to people who think for themselves, the idea that I'm going to just have all this empathy for people in the world, you've got to be fucking kidding me. It would be a form of self-abuse to have empathy for most people in the world. It would be a form of self-flagellation. It would be a form of self-punishment. Fundamentally, it would be a continuation of the abuse I was forced to suffer as a child when I have the choice not to suffer it as an adult. So I don't care. In fact, I hold as contempt, in contempt, those people who use or tried to use, I guess they try to use now, who use my former empathy to have me sacrifice my freedoms, my liberty, my resources, my independence, my self-regard, my pride. No. So as far as empathy goes, I view anybody who tries to evoke empathy in me now as a virtually mortal enemy. Anybody who's like, well, don't you care about? No. Well, have you ever criticized people for using the phrase white privilege? No. Then fuck off. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. It's just a button that you're trying to hit to get resources. I'm not a fucking vending machine of guilt. And you should not be either. We, uh, we owe our ancestors and the freedoms they fought to give us a hell of a lot more than to hand over everything that was won and handed to us for the sake of appeasing bullies that only grow stronger through our appeasement for the next five minutes. To swell the enemies, to destroy the past, to degrade the soul of people. I won't have it. So... No, don't have any more empathy for people than they have for you. It is not just personal suicide, but cultural suicide as well. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe not as extreme as your case was growing up, but you know, definitely in school, I, w I was always taught to, you know, be the nice guy, sort of white knight, do that sort of thing. And then 
and then and then just people walk all over you is the thing like you know you're you're just paying a target on the back of your head for bullies to come after you and then girls will just ignore you and that sort of thing and i mean uh I mean, nobody told me about, you know, it it was all, it was always, you know, patriarchy or white privilege, or how can you be a gentleman to the, to the ladies? And then nobody really told me that women had a dark side of their own. And I just kind of had to figure it out myself. And, you know, it's not to say that I, I became a a man's man or anything like that, but I grew a bit thicker of a shell and, you know, people just, um, just let me be or saw that I wasn't as easy of a target to go after. And I would suggest uh, try and figure out what is the emotional root of your father's hatred for Trump. I mean, he must hate Trump to the point where he's willing to ride roughshod over his own son's particular perspectives and preferences. Like, how full of hatred do you have to be to harm your relationship with your son? You understand? Like, I want you to really get this. Really, really important. You know, if I can't imagine. Let's say that someone in my life I love. And they say, Satan, (laughs) would you like to hear the good news about Satan, right? Now, I'm going to be a little surprised, (laughs) right? And unless there's a spoon clank, but I'm going to be a little bit surprised. But I'm going to hear, I'm going to listen, because I love that person. I want to know why they're (laughs) susceptible to the charms of the great horny one, right? I'm going to be curious. I want to know. Listen, I've asked people in my life who love me to be open (laughs) to some rather challenging facts and data and ideas and arguments. So I'm going to grant that. But this is the weird thing, right? How much do you have to hate some guy you've never met to ride roughshod and hold in contempt the preferences and arguments and ideas of your son? Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean that's really that's like what 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 is this major malfunction that Donald Trump, some politician you can't even vote for, is putting it at risk his relationship with his son? That's mental. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I find mean. out what's going on with that because it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. For it's sure. It's weird. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm a big fan. I'm I'm perfectly fine with political arguments breaking up relationships. I mean, I've been talking about the against me argument for many many years. I'm fine with that. But this isn't even at the level of a political argument. This is just at the level of sheer blind malevolent hatred. And I would say the same if he had to sheer blind malevolent hatred of Hillary Clinton or like what the hell? What is going on? Like what an opportunity for self knowledge. To, to, and, and for you guys to in, improve your relationships. What, what, a, um, what an opportunity that is really, really being missed by thinking this has anything to do with Donald Trump. Not one person in a thousand can say anything intelligent about government policy. Not one person in 10,000. So all of these opinions that people have about political figures and ideologies and policies and outcomes, and they don't have a fucking clue. They're blind as bats in bright sunlight. They don't have, it's all emotional driven. It's all about history and family and sexual market value and approval and dependence and, uh, you know, like bonding with bad. It's, it's got nothing to do with, with any objective evaluation of policies. Of course not. And it's a great 
opportunity to figure out what the hell is driving people in this crazy stuff. Why, why, why are people so full of hate? Now, we can see, again, this is sort of why I went back to this, we can see in the mainstream media why the hell people were so angry and fearful of Donald Trump, why they hated him with such visceral passion, such visceral passion. Why did they hate him with such visceral passion? Like this Golden Showers dossier, you know, there's a video of Chelsea Handler, a woman I'm proud to have no clue what the fuck she does in the world. But apparently she's famous. I think she's got a talk show or something. There's this woman named Chelsea Handler. And there's this actor, Jason Biggs, is a comedic actor. And there's a video of Jason Biggs peeing on Chelsea Handler's face. She's trying to get out of a of the water it's a pier or I don't know boat or it's a ladder and he's just standing there and he's peeing straight in her face the fuck is wrong with people he's peeing in her face seven new women have come forward to accuse Roman Polanski of sexual predation Meryl Streep this big feminist she's such a feminist that she never took Margaret Thatcher seriously because Margaret Thatcher had an older styled hairdo. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Well, the hair's silly, so clearly I take her seriously. Meryl Streep leads a standing ovation for Roma Polanski, who is a child rapist. Nobody disavows. The left claims to be appalled by all of this made-up sexual perversion in the Trump dossier. But you can have an actor pee on your face. The video can go viral. You still get a show. It's funny. It's funny. Listen to her talk about it in talk shows. It's funny. Uh, no. That's ritual humiliation. That's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's really what's been frustrating me, too, as well, because I can remember... Uh, back when the when the Trump Pussygate video came out, and uh, and I remember that was like, well, like my mom and dad were just uh, like broadcasting it all over the house. This is the end of Trump. This is awful. This is horrible. He's he's abused these women. He's raped these women. And then all this stuff about Hollywood and the Democrats come out and crickets. Right. Wait, your mom too? Uh, to an extent, not, not as, not, not as bad though. Like, she yeah, see, it's got as, nothing to do with uh, principles, nothing to do with principles yeah. whatsoever. The mm -hmm. Trump administration has finally revealed where the patriarchy actually exists, where the rape culture actually exists, seems to exist in the mainstream media and in Hollywood. And to a smaller degree in the sports world, although I think that dam is going to burst. And the dam that's really going to burst is academia. But that's really tough. That's really tough because there are so many people who are, who've invested so much in trying to get a PhD and trying to get tenure and trying to get a TA ship and trying to get a professorship. And they've got no option. You know, some young woman, she's 18. She goes out to Hollywood. It turns out to be a real shit show and a creep fest and a grab fest. She's like, I'm out of here. Got her whole life ahead of her probably invested six months in finding out how shitty the environment is. She's beautiful. She's probably intelligent. She's talented. She's ambitious. She's got the whole world ahead of her. She can go be an entrepreneur. She can be a model somewhere else. She can be a real estate agent. She can be whatever, right? So she 
dips in, finds how shitty the world is, and gets the fuck out. But in academia, you don't even get to the level where you can get close to the goodies until you've put in like 10 or 15 years in the salt mines of higher education. And people, that is a, that is a pretty long time waiting for the bus to start walking. They've got nothing else to go to. That's the old Matt Groening cartoon, the bitterest man in the world. The guy who did everything but his thesis in graduate school. Never got the doctorate. Most bitter man in the world. So if you look at all of these women who've been saying, oh, there's this rape culture, there's this, no, 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 no. The Democrats have it for sure. I mean, look at all of these. And now there's a Republican or two in there as well, but look at these men who are slowly coming out as sexual predators in the halls of Congress. Democrat, 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 Democrat. Conyers is going to retire. He's not going to run for re-election. He's, he's out. What is this? Apparently it's now a hereditary fiefdom because now another Conyers has to get him. Maybe it'll be his son who's had endless trouble with the law, it seems. Maybe it'll be some other person named Conyers. Because, <laughs> you know, you really, really want a man in charge of endless amounts of political power who's raised his children so well that they've turned out like his children have turned out. So, finally, after I've been hearing about rape culture and patriarchy, it turns out it's not really on campus. It turns out it's not really in your average middle-class home. It turns out it's not even that much associated with whites and Christians. It turns out it's largely another group entirely that have a lot of power in the media and in Hollywood. Oh, so where are the pussy marches? Where are the women in the pussy hats and the vagina hot dog suits out there protesting and getting mad and getting angry? Now that Roy Moore probably going to win, oh, Al Franken is disposable. Turns out the fifth or sixth woman will come out now. He's going to announce probably tomorrow he's out. No principle. They don't care about principles. They only care about momentum. So when people really hate Trump, we know, we know, you know this for a fact, my friends. You know this for an absolute certain fact. None of this would be coming out if Hillary was in power. None of this. Good God alive put out a very popular tweet. You should really follow me. At Stefan Molyneux on Twitter. Put out a tweet, it was very well-liked, well-shared, very popular. Where, and I said, now that we know how politicized the FBI has become, we should shudder with terror that such awesome power almost fell into the hands of Hillary Clinton, who would have used the weaponized and politicized FBI to go after her enemies. There's a reason why friends I have in the States who were speaking out about the truth said, if Hillary wins, I have to leave the country. They weren't kidding. And now we can see why. Because she would have used that politicized FBI like a Stasi. So the question is, why is there such hatred for Donald Trump? to the point where it eclipses any empathy that your father or others might have for your position. You know, I had Thaddeus Russell, a guy I disagree with enormously, 
We had a civilized and productive conversation regarding postmodernism. I've had lots of people on the show I disagree with. We have civilized and productive conversations. Maybe the deficiency of empathy comes first and the hatred for Donald Trump comes later. Hopefully that helps. I hope that you can have some conversations with your father about it. And I hope that you can keep him off this topic of Trump because that's a symptom. Guaranteed, that's not a cause. Yeah, no, and I mean, to be fair, um, uh, we did have a long stretch for a while, like about uh, two months where we... uh, where we just didn't talk about politics at all and uh and uh and just went on walks and just talked about other things and things were and things got uh got a whole lot better but then for whatever reason the politics came up again and then it just and and then it just took a nosedive again so i mean i mean i mean there is there, there is hope for improvement and i'm not saying i'm not completely um uh, i'm completely irresponsible in that regard no, either you're the child you're the child your father is primarily responsible for these things All right, well, listen, I'm going to move on to my final caller, but I really, really appreciate the call. I hope that you will let us know how it goes. And, uh, yeah, just, yeah, I'm a father. Just say to your father, it's not about Trump. And uh, it hurts that my feelings aren't being, my feelings and thoughts aren't being respected, even if you don't agree with me. So thanks for the call, man. And I appreciate the topic. Sure. Thanks, Beth. uh, You've been a great help. Thanks. All right, up next, we have Roman. Roman wrote in and said, In a recent discussion, Stefan was asked about and used his experience in the business world as an example and object lesson of his argument, and said how easy it was to dismiss the work of those who claim expertise in economics but have not been involved in running a business. To reinforce the point of what I understand to be an advantage of practical experience over theory, Stefan said he wouldn't claim to talk about the experience of the Filipino population in Michigan because obviously he is not a Filipino in Michigan. So obviously there is value in having personal experience in the subject at hand, but I'd argue and also understand that Stefan frequently pointed out that everyone should be capable in competently talking about any subject if one took the time and effort to become knowledgeable at it. The problem I see is that nowadays it's easy to get in a discussion where one is dismissed for not being of the identity and or not sharing the experiences of the subject at hand. How do you balance empirical knowledge and research with personal experience and identity in a discussion which both approaches could actually enrich the argument? How would one value one versus the other and use both advantageously without rubbishing the conversation like is done so frequently when one uses the identity argument to silence and shame the other or to try and see the flaws in both sides? One uses statistics and empirical knowledge to invalidate or explain away a lived personal or group experience. That's from Roman. Well, hey, Roman, how you doing? Hi, Stefan. Good to be talking to you, man. I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Oh, good. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I appreciate the uh, opportunity to, uh, to, to clarify things. Because, you know, I mean, I, I certainly do want to have the empiricism be there as well. Uh, am I fair to is it fair to say that you are not in fact a Filipino in Michigan? Is that can we agree on that one to begin with? Uh, no, I'm a German uh, in Brazil, uh, but it's almost the same these days. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, so first of all, I can't be a Filipino in Michigan. I can go to Michigan. I can't be a Filipino. However, everyone who's an economics professor or a teacher, they can be in the free market, right? If that makes yeah. sense. Uh, yeah, sure. 
So I would say that um, when when something is possible, like if you if you want to talk about being an entrepreneur, like if 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 I had only taught classes on being an entrepreneur, do you think anybody would want to read a book I had written about entrepreneurship? Like if I'd never actually been an entrepreneur. Well, I, I'd, uh, I'd say, depending on the work you put in it, it, it might be totally worthwhile and valid reading. If you, no, 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 no. If you talk to you. I'm sorry to interrupt you right when you start. Okay. okay, let's pretend you run a publishing company and Jeff Bezos comes and says, I want to tell my story as an entrepreneur. The guy is worth like $100 billion or four bitcoins. And yeah, he's sure. the guy who started Amazon, right? And Or he runs Amazon. And so okay. he comes to you, Jeff Bezos comes to you and says, I want to write a book about being an entrepreneur. And then some, and, and the same day, you get an email from some economics professor who has studied entrepreneurship and says, I want to write a book about entrepreneurship. Which book, if you could only choose one book, which book would you choose to publish? Yeah, we. Uh, this is the this is the shock value of a, of an exceptionality like Jeff Bezos. But if it was a if it was a, a professor of economics who did a, a, a comprehensible meta research into uh, results uh, spanning the last thirty years of entrepreneurships, and he said, "I have a I have a good economic theory, and I want to publish a book about this. And here is my research, and here is my work. Here here are my interviews. Here, uh, my my point is that the uh, and, and let me just bring it back to the to the first uh, when when I started this uh, this interaction with Michael. And by the way, thanks very much, my uh, Michael. You 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 did a you I, I I'm I'm certain you do a lot of great work, and it was a pleasure interacting with you uh, for the second time now we talked about brazil a, a while ago and uh, i'm thankful for you for bringing in here uh, our friend felipe mora and uh, it was a great talk also but uh, uh, what what i mean is uh, we use this kind of uh, identity um, w when it's convenient for us we uh, i i noticed that that you use it and uh, every one of us use it in in a discussion and uh, I, I want to go. Uh, uh, you, I, I'm pretty certain that you have to agree with me that uh, good research theory is as valid as personal experience, or at least not less valuable. Uh, otherwise, all, all the philosophical points you you make and uh, which uh, we listen to wouldn't make sense. You you can't have only personal experience to validate a theory. Uh, uh, Am I right on this? Am I making sense, or am I uh, going to uh, to? F am I? Uh, <laughs> yeah, English is not my first language, but I, I'm really trying no, here. No, no, no. Look, I understand the question, and it gets, it's a great question. It's a great question. I can't have empirical experience of everything I talk about. No question. No right. question. Which is why I work from first principles. Now you can work from first principles and still have valuable and important things to say about other subjects. But economists in general, in general, there are, I think the Austrian school of course is, is good this way because they're not woefully distracted by endless mathematical models. But so praxeology and the Austrian econ economists, or so the Austrian economics as a, as a whole. And if you haven't 
read about this and you don't know uh, about this, read about it and learn about it. It's fantastic. Yeah, stuff. They, they are the adversaries of the Frankfurt School. Is this correct? I, I think I, so. I think yeah. I, I mean, I, I they certainly some, uh, they think they, that people they are, are, yeah, they're, they're drowning in rational than the than the than the Frankfurters for sure I'm uh, uh, Mises and those guys are from the Austrian school is this correct yeah yeah and um yeah, yeah they're very much like they think that I don't want to get into a big description of it because I've got a whole I actually did a show with Prax girl some some years ago where we talked about <laughs> praxeology and that kind of stuff so you can you can look at that so I won't get into that now because I probably will mischaracterize some of what I said back then so but I will say this so if people are working from first principles, fantastic, fantastic. So you don't have to build the bridge if you're working from engineering principles. You don't actually have to build the bridge to know whether the bridge will stand. Yeah. Right. So you don't have to have empirical experience if you're working from first principles following an objective methodology. However, when somebody says to me, and a lot of economists will say this, a lot of economists will say this, that business ownership is exploitation. Owners are exploiters, right? Now, uh, so the question is, how would you convince someone that that wasn't the case? And now, one thing you could do is you could give them all the arguments about risk and 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 um, uh, extra work and starting the business and all that kind of stuff. Or you could say, have you ever been a business owner? Now, okay. if the person says no, then that's kind of different. So if, they, if they're making a moral judgment and they've not actually been a business owner, then that's a different matter. Yeah, okay, I, I, I agree. But uh, would, would you agree that this is an argument from uh, identity politics? Because no. if you, if no, you no, no, were... I, no, hang on, no, hang on, hang on. Let, let, me, let me just... Let, can, can I just finish? I will be really quick. Because okay. if, you were, if you were opposite word, uh, Stefan Molyneux, who have failed his business or been fired or gotten into a, a lease and lost his home because of an economy downturn, it's very, it, it might be just as probable that you, you'd you be agreeing with this professor due to your personal experience. Uh, uh, no, okay, you know, let's, let's go back. Hang on, hang on. Let's go back to the identity politics. Identity politics. There's this big confusion about identity politics, which shows up in the number of times that people like Paul Joseph Watson need to remind people Islam is not a race, <laughs> right? If you can convert to it. Yeah, I'm sort of. Hang on, hang on. No, no, no. This is the part, this is the part where I'm doing a bit of talking. Hang on. Yeah, I know sorry. you're German. Hold your horses. I'm not Poland. All right, hold on. So, <laughs> if. <laughs> okay. You, you get the joke. All right. So, I'm, I'm half German, so I can make this joke. So, identity politics is things that you can't change. So you can't convert to being black, right? You, you can't convert to being blue-eyed. I mean, you can wear contacts, but you know, like authentically. I can't convert to guy with hair, right? <laughs> Without a time machine. So there are things that you, you can't change. So yeah, identity yes, but, politics, but tends, hang on, no, no, still talking. Identity politics tends to be around the things that you can change. If you can convert to it, it's a lot more fluid and flexible. So I, it, if I say, if you want to have a meaningful discussion about the ethics of business, then if you're going to have a negative judgment about business owners as a whole, if you're going to say, well, they're exploiters or they're corruptors or they're you know, whatever, thieves, then my question would be, okay, well, have you ever run a business? 
because you haven't like it's the old thing if you say all chinese people are x they say well do you have you actually met chinese people have you ever been to china these, these are reasonable questions to ask of somebody who has a pretty universal prejudice and so if somebody says the business owners i have known are exploiters okay well that's one thing but if you say oh you can say the women i have known are cheaters they've cheated on me okay well then you're confessing something about your own choices and your own personality and your own history and your own blindness and so on but if you say all women are cheaters well that's a whole different matter so people who make blanket moral statements about a group yeah i want to know I, have you ever done it have you do you know people who are doing it uh, do you actually know these people that you're making these uh, statements about and so on so that's not identity politics uh, because anybody can try to go into the free market. Anyone, anyone can try and be an entrepreneur from a kid who's mowing the lawn for money to, to somebody who's running a Fortune 500 company, from somebody who's coming to your house to say, oh, you have a ding in your car, I can fix that for you, to you know, somebody who's uh, running a warehouse. Anybody can go and do it. Anyone can go and try to, to but, do that. You, so that's not you, identity politics be... because it's open to everyone. So, 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 but, but you agree, I'm using identity, not in the, uh, uh, let's say, I, I'm, I'm trying to use identity in the most general sense, not in the stupid uh, uh, right, left, uh, uh, whatever sense you, you uh, uh, I, I'm using identity. You, you are the sum of your experiences. This is part of your identity. So you are Stefan Molyneux, who had a pretty good personal experience in business, Wait, wait, what do you mean a good? Hang on. What do you mean a good? Hang on. What do you mean a good personal experience? Yeah, you you, you uh, achieved some measure of success and uh, and wealth due to your hard work, and due to your uh, uh, um, commitment to to business to your to your studies. Uh, so your experience in the business world was a positive one, and you used this experience to lend weight to your argument in this episode, which I which I mentioned. On the no, same listen, hand, hang on, hang on, hang on. It doesn't, it doesn't, you don't need to be successful in business in order for me to have a more personal experience in business. But yes, if somebody yes, wants to tell me, hang on, if somebody wants to tell me about Thailand and they've never been to Thailand, that matters to me. Yes, okay, but uh, in this in this context, uh, w would you uh, at least agree that your uh, your business experience is part of your identity you you used your identity in this discussion is the uh, ca can we agree on this because this my is sort of the main experience is part of my identity i don't yes, know what that I, means i, I, I i'd is say so like my identity like like coming from being born in ireland or being blue-eyed or being white or a male like i don't some of those things are not open to my choice now that those are Yes, exactly. Like, like, oh, uh, uh, oh, identity. Like, uh, like being black. Like, uh, what is in the past? You, you, you can't change. It, it is part of what formed you, and it's part of what you use. And is in the same in the same uh, veneer is what you said. Well, I, I can't really talk about the, the Filipino experience because it's not part of my experience. And I no, because I can't. I no, hang on. I can't I talk about the even, Filipino experience. Okay, dude, dude, hang on. I can't talk about the Filipino experience because I'm not Filipino. Yeah, sure, but but, but, you, but I you... can talk about the business experience, which is open to anyone. A Filipino can go into business. So if you uh, you've got this thing where you try and conflate these two terms, like experience and identity, and I think that's really confusing. Yeah, yes, yes uh, I had some success my... in business. Although, listen, I'm I'm no towering genius when it comes to the software business. You know, I I co-founded a company, we grew it to 
I don't know, 30 or so employees. It's still running today. This is not Microsoft. Like I was not like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Steve Jobs there. You know, I did a good no, job. No, but but, it, but really it's quite an it. achievement. It's quite an achievement to, uh, in succeeding in any field nowadays. It's not, uh, it's not to put uh, you down or anything. I, I, I appreciate your, your telling your experience, but uh, if, if it wasn't uh, that positive, uh, if you had the same conversation with, with a guy and you and you had only negative things to relate about your experience in the business world, as there are many people who fail in the business due to their own fault or, or, or due to uh, external factors or what, whatever the reason might be, uh, lo lots of people fail in the business. <laughs> for, for every business that succeeds, there are some that fail. If you were one of those, uh, then... Uh, your your experience would influence this conversation no no it's okay i think i think i understand where the, the difficulty is i won't say to someone you're wrong because you haven't been an entrepreneur like if somebody's telling me about business or somebody's telling me like i won't say to them my argument against what you're saying is that i was an entrepreneur because it's not an argument Somebody can say perfectly true things about the market, about being an entrepreneur, without having been an entrepreneur, right? But if they get things completely wrong, then I have the right, well, I have the right no matter what, but it's reasonable to say to someone who says, you know, capitalists are exploiters, business owners are exploiters, or whatever, right? If they're saying something that's completely wrong, then there's some reason that they're saying something that's completely wrong, right? Now, if someone's saying something completely wrong about a field that I have had 15 years direct or 20 years direct experience, we've got around 30 years direct experience in, right? If somebody is saying, oh, 25 years, if somebody is saying something that is completely wrong, that's the opposite of the truth, in fact, then I have to identify the source of that error. Now, if they've had a direct experience that informs what it is that they do, then I have to deal with the experience that they've had, right? So if you remember, I had a debate okay. some years back about Bitcoin with Peter Schiff, but that's, you can look at it yourself. I think it was even before that, but I had a debate some time back with Peter Joseph regarding the resource-based economy. It's a good debate. You should listen to it. Okay. Word salad, yummy, yummy. And yeah, I, I it think is. it's too it's too late now to get into it. Nah, uh, well, no, but so so now Peter Joseph, <laughs> one of the things that he talked about was his negative experience of the market. I think he worked yes. in a, for a video outlet or I can't remember the details, but he had some negative experience of the market. So that, you know, when you say to people, well, you're wrong, but but what is informing you being wrong? How, how did you come to this conclusion? Now, if someone has come to their conclusion because of direct experience, then you have to push back against that. You have to say how their direct experience is not a universal. Yeah, truth. exactly. So, so uh, hang on. Uh, no, uh, let me finish. Uh, let me finish. Dude, dude, let yeah. me finish. I'll tell you when I'm done. I promise you. I won't keep it from you. So if someone says women are cheaters, and then you say, well, my last five girlfriends cheated on me. Well, how do you rebut that? Well, you have to deal with their direct personal experience. If someone says, 
owners are exploiters. And it turns out they worked for their uncle who ripped them off. Okay, well, then you have to deal with that. It's then they're coming, they're coming at it empirically. Right yeah. now, if the person, though, has never had any experience in entrepreneurship, they've never run a business. They, so then the question is, okay, why do they think that owners are exploiters? Well, it comes from a theory, some sort of Marxist theory or exploitive, you know, labor-based theory of value. Like, oh, the, the workers are the one doing the work. And they're going. So in order to say, like, so when I say to someone, do you have it, like, have you ever been an entrepreneur? I mean, okay. Part of it is you're wrong and you don't, like, you're wrong, but I need to know where the source of your error is. Does it make the person look bad? Sure. Do I mind that? I really don't. But the point is, I need to know what to rebut. If, if I'm rebutting their empirical experience, I need to take a different approach than if it's mere theory with no empirical experience, you need to rebut it in a different kind of way. Okay, so, so the, uh, your, your personal experience might be a boon in a conversation against somebody which is only using theory, especially if you are certain that he is wrong, because in the in the conversation I was referring to, we weren't talking specifically about Marxist or socialist or leftist theories, but uh, about theorists in general. Uh, on the same side, I, I, I'd posit, uh, when we talk about the Filipinos, uh, I, I'd posit that uh, you could get quite a lot of Uh, valuable knowledge about the Filipino experience in Baltimore, the problems they are experiencing, where they come from, what is their financial difficulties, what uh, what, uh, what prejudices they have to fight, etc. There, there's a wealth of information uh, uh, there for this. Now, if you discuss, try and discuss this with a Filipino from Baltimore, he might he just shut you up, tell him, oh, whatever you learned about this is worthless, because I'm a Filipino in Baltimore and you are not. That was kind of my question, because this is... If I got things really wrong, right? If I got things really wrong about, you know, if I said, well, the problem with the Filipinos in Baltimore is that they don't know what to do with all of the excess gold and diamonds that come <laughs> out of them when they take a shit in the toilet. Okay. Right? I mean, something ridiculous, right? Yeah, but but that that's not what hang happens on, in in real life discussions, Stefan. Oh my God! Okay, come on, let me finish my point. Okay, please. So if I said something egregiously wrong about the Filipino experience in Michigan, and there was a Filipino there, would they say, "Have you ever talked with a Filipino from Michigan?" And if I said no, then clearly I'm talking out of my ass, right? Yes, but but I'm 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 talking about uh, uh, let's say best effort uh, empirical knowledge, and and you said no, I I talked to 100 Filipinos in Baltimore, and yet your personal experience uh, d does not jibe with with what I uh, with what uh, let's say with what I measured. But, yes, because but, it, but here's it, the thing. Here's the thing. If I talked to 100 Filipinos. In Michigan, then I would have the empirical data about the Filipino experience in Michigan. And in the yes. same way, if somebody said there's a lot of like all owners are exploiters, then clearly they could not reach that conclusion by interviewing a hundred business owners. 
Yes, but 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 my question was uh, parting from the best intentions and best uh, uh, like what like like you used to work. Uh, I I'd guess that if you wanted to talk about the Filipino experience in Michigan, you would make an honest effort to to understand it. And yet, in nowadays discussion climate, any Filipino from Michigan or or even somebody claiming to speak. For a Filipino in Michigan, uh, could uh, could use your identity in a discussion to shut your up. Right. And, okay, uh, but see, and, then and that's we, fine. That's fine because then what they I say multiculturalism doesn't work. And so if they then say, well, you can't have any opinions, you can't have any contact, you can't have any understanding, you can't have any fundamental comprehension of yes. this other group. Well, they're just reinforcing my point that multiculturalism doesn't really work. So I still won that argument. Okay, I think we've circled the drain enough. I'm going to move on to the final caller, but I really do appreciate you calling in with this topic. It's very interesting to me. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Okay, up next we have Nico. Nico wrote in and said, I'm afraid to have a child with a woman and have her leave from boredom, thus separating the family. I'm afraid of a woman lying to destroy my reputation to win custody or for winning sympathy after a breakup or divorce. I was raised by a single mother since I was around 12. My mother was never married to my father and has four kids by three fathers. I am struggling to reconcile my desire to create a two-parent married household with children and living a MGTOW lifestyle. What advice or criticism could you give me? That's from Nico. Nico, how you doing, man? Hello, Stefan. I'm doing great. Glad to be on here. All right. Is it a particular woman or just a theoretical woman at the moment? Uh, theoretical. I'm not in a relationship. No. Okay. Well, that would be the MGTOW thing, right? <laughs> right. So what the hell happened to your mom and your dad? Um, what well, the hell happened to your mom? <laughs> Why is she like, you know, like I think of the word, I think of a boomerang in a V shape and I think of your mom throwing a boomerang. I'm just putting it that, that way. <laughs> Uh, well, myself, like uh, my mom and father, they never married. And then I was basically lived with my stepdad and my mom most of my life. And then they split up when I was young, too, as well. So I was since 12, you know, before like middle school and everything, I've been with my mom. What I'm 24 now, though. So. Oh, she, what did she live on? Uh, she um, basically, honestly, the child support checks, she didn't work like most of my life, like knowing her. So she was like a professional mom, right? Yeah, honestly, um, you know, I did call her out on that a lot whenever I was younger growing up between my brothers and me. But uh, yeah, because my stepfather, he had a good job. And then between my dad as well, doing child support and then income based apartment or apartments and then other social services, things like that, free health care, all that, all that stuff. Right. Um And how do you get along with your mom these days? Um, to be honest, I don't talk to her, and I ignore, like, if she messages me on Facebook, I kind of just ignore it, honestly. I, I do, there like, anything holidays. in particular, sorry to interrupt, was there anything in particular that caused that change? Um, I've kind of always been to myself a lot, but I do think that once I started to realize, like, my childhood, like, you know, once I started your show or... You know, before your show as well, like, I kind of got, you know, started realizing, you know, what, you know, my childhood really was, so. 
Right. I don't know. I just kind of grew apart. What was the um, negative stuff that happened in your childhood uh, that you realized? Um, I would say a lot of like my feelings today towards like single moms and like uh, not believing in government programs, like the abuse behind it and stuff. Like, I feel like a lot of that I saw um, growing up. I'm sorry. What was the original? What was the question again? Uh, what makes you dissociate the fastest? Oh. Well, I guess it would be the question about the negative experience that you had, yeah. experiences that you had as a child. Um, I'd say that, and then I, you know, you know, when I took the ACE quiz for the show, uh, you know, asked me like previous things, like was there like, you know, stepfather? He did use drugs, things like that. So there were other negative things. Um, so you were most, in a real trash pit, right? I mean, you had. Uh, Spanking, verbal abuse, drug addict, stepdad. I mean, you were in a real trash pit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not until I got older that I kind of realized a lot of these things, like what impact they may actually have on me. Right. Right. Uh, but nowadays, I feel it more than ever, honestly. Yeah. Now, it's when you have uh, when you have a bad mom, it's a tough call, right? It's a tough call. Do you focus on the past or do you build for the future? Because you can hang around the bad mom, the unrepentant bad mom. I assume that your mom has not like gone to therapy, figured things out, apologized, struggled to do better. Is that right? No, I'd say she's just about the same. I believe, you know, she works now because she can't live off of the child support because, you know, I'm not, you know, there to collect it anymore. Amazing um, that, eh? Get, get free <laughs> stuff. Look at that. Back to work. No, and it's yeah. tough, you know, and, and, and it, it's, it's a very tough, you know, for those who are out there who don't have these kinds of choices, good for you. But I would ask the world to spare a little bit more sympathy for people like Nico, maybe people like myself who've had to struggle with these very difficult decisions, these very difficult choices, these very difficult relationships, because um, it comes down to this. You know, my mom had her life. Your mom had her life. She made her decisions. And if you want a different kind of life, you have a problem. If you want a different kind of life and there are people from your old life who won't change, one, something has to give. Something has to give. It's like, you know, the dog that desperately wants to get somewhere and he's tied up to a stake somewhere. Well, he either doesn't get where he goes or he breaks free. There's really no other choice. He doesn't go halfway. And so if you want a new kind of life and everyone or there's people in your life from your old life and they won't change. You have to make choices. They're hard choices. And it's funny, you know, because you think of things like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, what's the first thing they say? You want to stop drinking? You got to give up the people who drink. You got to not be in that environment. You got to not be around the drinkers. You want to give up drugs? You have to not be around the druggies. You got to not be in the location. You got to not go to bars. You got to not go to opium dens or whatever that you got to not go to the frat parties where the drugs are being passed around. You got to not go. You got to be out of that environment. You got to reshape your social circle to not include the people who are triggers for your prior behavior. And these are adult choices. Adult drinking, adult drug use, adult promiscuity, whatever. Gambling. You want to quit gambling? You got to not hang out with gamblers. You got to not go to Vegas. You got to not go into casinos. 
because the temptation becomes. And these are all adult choices. Not many kids getting addicted to gambling and promiscuity at the age of four. So if you want a life different from your origin story, if you want to rewrite that narrative, if you want to change the ending of predestination, of historical inertia, well, either people around you change you to accompany you in your new direction. You know, maybe you can hang out with your friends if you all give up gambling or if you all give up promiscuity or you all give up drinking or drugs. Maybe. But that's, you know, we all know that doesn't happen. It's like, hey, everyone at the same time, we're going to give up this vice all together. We're all going to support each other. It's all going to never happens, right? So when you try to change, you try to improve. It's the crab thing, right? The crabs can't get out of the bucket because... Every time the crab tries to get out of the bucket, the other one pulls him down. So if you want a new kind of life, you've got a choice. And that choice is you abandon the past and strike out to a different future. Or you give up that different future and you just hang out in the past. In the Groundhog Day, a blind, dumb, stupid, often abusive repetition. Justification, alienation, subterfuge, undermining, abuse, decline, degradation. All of it. You gotta let go of the barrel to make it to the shore. And people who've not had to make those decisions, you don't know. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. You can ask, don't you dare tell people who have to make this decision. Don't you dare tell people what's right and wrong and what's good or bad about those decisions. You don't know. Don't know. And you should have the humility to know when you don't know and to have sympathy for people who have to make those kinds of decisions and respect for the people who are willing to let go of the past in order to build a better future. So I'm sorry to hear, Nico, about what happened with your mom. I really am. But the first step towards having better relationships is to get out of the orbit of people who are committed to your failure. People who are losers in life, people who are failures in life, don't fool yourself. They are committed to you failing. They are committed to you failing. People who don't have responsibility for themselves, they are committed to your irresponsibility, to you not taking responsibility for yourself. People who are parasites are committed to you being a parasite or justifying their parasitism. They are not at all committed. In fact, they are deep down in their bone marrow opposed to you standing on your own two feet. People who are trashy, people who are lazy, people who are destructive, people who are self-destructive, people who are abusive, they are only committed to the very worst in you. They are never committed to the best. Because if you improve, people who are spendthrifts are not at all committed to you saving unless you saving helps them borrow money to spend more. <laughs> They're only committed to the virtues that you might have in order to exploit those virtues. The farmer is committed to the productivity of the land so he can sell the products of the land. The farmer is only committed to the health of the cow so that he can pillage them for meat and milk. And so if you are to have a fighting chance, you have to get rid of the undertow. You have to get rid of those who have the negative view of who you are. You can't be bigger You can't be bigger than the vision of you that is the smallest in those around you. 
if you have 10 people around you who think you can do great things and there's one person around you who thinks you can't, you can't. It's the lowest common denominator. It's food and arsenic. Doesn't take a lot of drops to kill you. So, and the reason I'm saying all of this, Nico, is because if you want a different life than the one you grew up with, then not speaking to an unrepentant bad parent is not a bad first step, in my humble opinion. Because now what happens is if you meet a quality woman, you don't have to explain what the hell your mom's doing in your life. You don't have to explain why you love your mom. You don't have to explain why you're going over to see your mom. You don't have to explain any of this. I didn't. It's the reason why I'm happily married. People don't understand this. The, reason, the only reason I'm happily married is because I made my choices with my relationships. The only reason. Only reason. I don't have to explain those people to my wife. I don't. I don't have to explain those people to my audience. Thank heavens. So if you want to create a two-parent married household with kids, and you don't want a woman to just destroy your life, to blow up your life, I mean, you can play the statistics game. You can have self-knowledge. You can do therapy. You can work on yourself. You can commit to philosophy, to self-knowledge, to virtue, and that is going to give you the best fighting chance. But remember, there's a lot that nature can do to make you miserable. Every time we love, we are standing on a creaky bridge of mortality and accidents and ill health. You know, my wife loves me enormously and 10 years into our marriage, I get cancer with a little baby girl around. Now, that could have gone very badly for everyone concerned. It might still tomorrow for all I know. But that's not the state. Well, okay, I was undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for a year and finally had to flee to the States for treatment. But the wonderful Dr. Smith at the Oklahoma Surgery Center. But um, there's a lot that can happen to break your heart that doesn't have anything to do with MGTOW, or doesn't have anything to do with the state, or doesn't have anything to do with alimony or feminism or any of that. There's a lot that can happen to break your heart of this life. To bring you low, to bring you down. It's not the only risk factor is all I'm saying. It's not the only risk factor. If you are virtuous yourself, you know, you can't commit to health. You can't commit to health. You can commit to eating well. You can commit to exercising. You can commit to not having destructive habits. You don't drink too much. You don't smoke. Right? You, you can't aim at health. You can aim at good habits. And that gives you your best chance. You can't aim at love, but you can aim at virtue. And that gives you your best chance at a lasting love. That gives you your best chance. In fact, I believe aiming at virtue gives you your only chance. If you are openly virtuous, if you are conspicuously virtuous, if you are bravely and nobly virtuous in this life, Nico, evil people will flee you or will make themselves known by unjustly attacking you. 
And the great thing is, is that when you get unjustly attacked by evil people, it repels evil people from you. They're doing you a great service and a great favor. It may not seem so at the time, but they're doing you a great service and a great favor. Being attacked by evil people, and this doesn't mean in the media, I mean, it can, right? But it, it, it's just personal, right? Oh, I hate that Nico guy because, blah, 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 right? He's such a square. He won't come out and party. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He just, you know, right? Okay, so what do people hear when they hear about trashy people trashing you? They hear that trashy people oppose you. Well, why do trashy people oppose you? It's probably not because you're even more trashy because <laughs> they're not saying he drinks too much. You're not like um, that Mickey Rock character. That, no, he drinks too much. Um, Barfly. I hate people. Don't you hate people? No, I don't hate people. I just seem to feel better when they're not around. But uh, why, why are trashy people trashing you? Because you're better. Ah, better. Better than the trashy people. I mean, it's not the highest standard in the world, but it's better than being praised by trashy people. Oh, he's one of us. He's a great guy. So when you're a, a good, conspicuously virtuous person, doesn't mean online, doesn't mean publicly, doesn't mean outrageously, just means in your life, then you will be opposed or held in contempt by bad people, which is a clear signal to people that you're a good person. And so bad people will stay away from you and good people will be drawn to you. It's a wonderfully efficient thing. So, you know, we, we're, we're a tribal animals for the most part, particularly we case-selected people. So we want to be liked by people. We want to be liked by everyone, I guess. It's a fantasy, right? And in a small tribe, that meant something because, you know, we're still wired in set. If there's someone in our small tribe who's full of venomous, bottomless hate towards us, then one of us is going down, usually before sundown, right? I mean, there was not this long, drawn-out troll battle that goes on on the internet and so on. Normally, if somebody's full of bottomless hatred towards you, you know, you both pick up rocks and it's resolved, right? But we now have this other way where our our nervous systems sometimes don't know that this is just somebody typing uh, on the other side of the, of the world, right? It doesn't matter. It seems like and you're somebody yelling in your face, but it's not. It's nothing to do with that. And you can train yourself out of that nonsense. But the good news is if you are a conspicuously virtuous person, bad people will stay away from you. And they will also help other bad people stay away from you by outlining you in the red fire of subterranean satanic hatred. And that drives bad people away and draws good people to you. Draws good people to you. Some of my greatest friends have found me through the hatred of my enemies. It's true. It's absolutely true. Some of my greatest friends have found me through the hatred of my enemies. When I was slandered about and written about and lied about. Well, People are like, wow, that's those bad people really hate this guy. I wonder what he has to say. <laughs> right. So it is um it is a powerful and important thing. Be good. Be open about being good. Do not consort with evildoers. Do not consort with evildoers. Because if you consult with evildoers, you will have to explain to good people why they're in your life. And there is no way to explain to good people why evildoers are in your life. Walk 
with the righteous, saith the Lord. Shun evil, saith philosophy. I think that's the greatest security that you can get. What do you think? I I actually I agree with that um, that sentiment. Like, um, how how do you explain evil people in your life to you know like the good people that you keep in your life? You can't. Oh no, I can. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was saying I I I, I like that um, perspective on taking it where. It, you know, it's um, not only should you keep the bad people out of your life, but how can you explain that to the good people around you? Yeah, and sorry, just the one other point I forgot to make is is it fundamentally is an insult to the good people. Because if you have an evildoer in your life and you say, well, I, I love this person or I like this person, and then you say to the good person, I like and love you, then you're saying, I love you, the good person, and the opposite of you who is the evildoer, which means love is meaningless. And yeah. what person wants to be told... Like, what, what person wants to have the relationship described with the same word as the relationship with an evildoer? I love you, good person. I love you, bad person. Or, you're in my life, good person, because I need you or respect you or whatever. And you're in my life, bad person, because I need you, respect you or fear you or whatever. It's just appeasement. It's gross. And there is no explanation. Other than you have no standards. And you just say whatever, and you don't really understand what the word love means, and you're not willing to be a good person. None of that makes you trustworthy. So be conspicuously virtuous. It is an incredible power in this world. It is an incredible power in this world. It operates in a social level deeper than the physics of the universe. You know, there are all these people who have these mystical views, or you ask the universe, or you do this, and there's karma. All of that's bullshit. Just be good. Just be virtuous, just love virtue and hate evil. And no, you cannot love a virtue without hating evil. You cannot. That's like saying I'm desperate to be healthy and I don't care at all if I'm sick. One or the other. If you don't care that you're sick, you don't love health. I'm desperate to be thin, but I'm completely indifferent to being fat. Come on. You cannot love virtue without hating evil. And if you mix the two in your social relations, you just short circuit that basic equation and leave people confused and contemptuous. So be virtuous, be good, love virtue, shun and fight evil. And you will be astounded at what will come into your life. Because we're all listening like bats navigating with their hypersonic squeaks, we are all listening for the deep hum of virtue. We are all looking for the giant volcano flare of courage against fighting evil. The most amazing things have come into my life by pursuing virtue, being good, not perfect, but good, pursuing it. And there's nobody in my life who's not a good or great person. Nobody. And there's nobody trying to get in who's not a good or great person. I am shielded. I am surrounded. I am bulletproof in a way. Don't try it. <laughs> it's, an, it's an analogy. It's an allegory. But just pursue the virtue. And I was not particularly interested 
in getting married, you understand. I was not particularly interested in have kids, having kids. I knew I'd be a great dad. I mean, I worked in a daycare and kids, kids like me, and I get along with kids really well. But I, I didn't know any happy marriages when I was growing up. I didn't know any happy marriages among the people that I knew. I knew one guy, his wife had an affair in him. I knew another guy, his wife nagged him to the point where he literally dumped, picked up garbage and dumped, it, dumped a can of garbage on her head. I mean, I could go through the list of divorces and, and I mean, like, why, why the hell would I want to have anything to do with that? Are you kidding me? But you pursue virtue, you pursue self-knowledge. I did a year and a half of therapy. No, close to two years of therapy. Three hours a week. And then another 10 hours of journaling and writing and trying to figure out myself. And then I met the right woman, got married to her 11 months after I met her, been married for 15 years and it's, it was great at the beginning and it's even better now because you do the work and incredible things happen. Do the work, know thyself. It is a force greater than physics. Self-knowledge is superhuman. You look at people who are doing great things in the world and you say, how could they do that? How could they do that? I'm so scared. You have self-knowledge. You have self-knowledge. You become a superhero. You become powerful beyond recognition to yourself even earlier. It's true for me. I'm doing things now I could not have imagined doing even a few years ago. Talking about truths I could not have imagined talking about even a few years ago. And it will be the same a few years from now. Well, thanks very much for your calls, everyone. I really, really appreciate it. It was a great privilege and a pleasure deep pleasure as always to chat with you all and please don't forget to help out the show please i beg you freedomainradio.com slash donate well, it's december now december 2017 you can of course go to uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show and you can of course use our affiliate link christmas season is upon us the affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash amazon and you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux, as I mentioned in the show, and sign up for the newsletter at freedomainradio.com because you never know what might happen. Thanks, everyone, so much. I love you guys so much. It is a real privilege, privilege and a pleasure. Have a great, great week. I'll talk to you soon.